0: To Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring Coast to Coast AM from July 8th, 1997.
1: From the high desert and the great American Southwest, I bid you good evening or good morning as the case may be, depending on your time zone. All these prolific time zones actually stretching from the Hawaiian and Tahitian island chains in the west all the way east to the Caribbean and the U.S. Virgin Islands, south into South America, north to the pole, and worldwide on the Internet. This is Ghost Coast AM. I'm Art Bell. Top of the whatever time of day it is to you. Great to be here. Coming up, Stan Tennant. Stan Tennant. We're going to be talking about Bible codes and a lot more. Oh, so, stand by. It's going to be a, a standby. <laughs> it's going to be a very interesting evening, I can assure you. Very much uh, looking forward to it. I have got the distinct pleasure of welcoming KFYO-AM in Lubbock, Texas. There's 790 on the dial in Lubbock, Texas. And welcome aboard. Glad to be back in Lubbock. Also uh, WFMN in Jackson, Mississippi. And I guess they're uh, they're a big one down there, 25,000 watts. Uh, heard uh, throughout the regional area. WFN, WFMN, FM. Beginning tonight, beginning now. Glad to have you aboard. Uh, also welcoming WTKF. Uh, they would be uh, at 107.3 on the dial in Newport, North Carolina. Uh, another big one, 25. 1000 watts, probably heard all over the place, all over the place in North Carolina, that portion of North Carolina. So welcome aboard to all of those stations. Now, we're going to be talking about codes in the Bible here in a moment. Stan Tenen is the director of research for the Meru Foundation of Sharon, Massachusetts. He has a B.S. in physics, 1963, from the New York Poly. Technic Institute. Mr. Tenen has designed and produced optical and electronic equipment for doctors and surgeons. He holds several patents in his own right. In 1968, while examining the Hebrew text of Genesis, Mr. Tenen noticed what appeared to be a pattern in the arrangement of the letters. This observation, which prompted 30 years of research into the history and mythology of the text has led to a meaningful understanding of traditional teachings in a modern context. Now, many of you will be familiar with the work of Michael Drosnan Drosnan, I believe it is, who wrote uh, the Bible Codes. And uh, Mr. Droznan's take on the Bible Codes is that they relate um, prophecy, that they tell us about things to come. And I, I think that um, Stan Tenen's explanation of what he has found is uh, far more elegant uh, in every
2: way you can imagine. Stan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Art. Um, it's really good to be back on. I appreciate it very much. We had a, an excellent time about a month ago. Yes, we did.
1: Um, I'm, I'm sort of curious. Um, why do you think, Stan, that Michael Drosnan, um stumbled into the Bible codes, and you stumbled into the Bible codes. I don't know if anybody else is doing serious work in the, in the area, but you must have been for a long time doing parallel work with Mr. Drosman.
2: Well, um, actually, our situation was somewhat different. My und- I don't know Michael Drosman, um, but my understanding is that he's a journalist. He's a reporter and that what um, he is reporting on are published works and some unpublished works by statisticians, um, mostly in Israel now, some of whom were originally at UCLA a few years ago. Um, I remember reading some of the pre-publication papers that were submitted to Statistical Science on the Codes um, at the office of a friend of mine at UC Berkeley about oh maybe five or six years ago now. And so there's been a lot of time to think about this. But um, this is modern work. This was done statistically using computers in the last 10 or 15 years um, at, at most. In fact, there was other work done much earlier by a Rabbi Weissmandel um, around the turn of the century. Uh-huh. Obviously, he didn't have computers. Um, but when I started my work, I didn't know about Rabbi Weissmandel at all. And the statistical um, codes in the Bible and the Torah, hadn't that work hadn't been done yet either. Um, my approach to this was it was completely separate and was a, a kind of a, a mystery tale, an adventure, um, because I really didn't have any idea where it was going to lead when I first noticed these patterns um, simply by looking at the text in 1968. All right. Well,
1: these patterns, if they are real, uh, have to be repeatable and unambiguous. In other words. Uh, that's the scientific method. Uh, they have to be repeatable, something you can uh, see again and again and again throughout the text. Or
2: is it in just a portion of the text, or all of it? Um, the statistical work is through the five books of Moses, and one of the astonishing things about that work is that the patterns um, that are statistically most robust are found to be distributed through all five books which is something that's very disturbing to the academic bible scholars who believe that the five books of moses were actually composed by humans over a about a thousand year period and so finding um, codes in letter sequences that extend through all five books would seem to be impossible from an academic scholarship point of view which means that they have a different explanation than the explanation of the religious scholars um, my right. explanation is a third explanation, which seems to resolve the two in, a, in an unexpected way.
1: It resolves the two. All right, so that the average human being can understand what we're talking about here. Uh, people say codes in the Bible. Baloney. The Bible says and means exactly what it says and means. There's, there's no need for hidden meaning in the Bible. It, it means just what it says. As you read Genesis... It means precisely what it says. Um, how do you argue
2: that's not so? I mean, Well, there's there's a couple of different problems with that. Um, one, I'm not a Bible scholar in terms of, of the understanding of the narrative um, stories in the Bible. Obviously, I've read the Bible. I've read through the Hebrew Bible. Um, we read through the Hebrew Bible on a yearly cycle in Judaism. So I've, I've read through the Hebrew Bible and the English translations, um, and I'm just not an expert in that. All right,
1: or can we talk about uh, Genesis? Genesis is the story. Of well, let me creation. tell you the
2: teaching here. This isn't. This is what most people don't know. First, the Bible we have in English is a translation um, of one one form or another. Um, the most common in the United States is the so-called King James translation. Yes, which is basically. Um, very similar to the others. There are minor differences. The the, the the official Hebrew translation is a little different than the King James. The right. the Catholic is a little different than the Protestant versions. Um but these are in English. The original text of the Hebrew Bible is not written in English. It's written in Hebrew. Um okay. And Hebrew has a different number of letters in the alphabet, and obviously the words are spelled differently than in English. Right. And what most people don't know about the Hebrew Bible is that both scholars, academic and religious scholars, agree that the oldest versions of the Hebrew Bible, which none exist now, but nevertheless this is understood, were not, the text wasn't broken up into words. It was literally a sequence of Hebrew letters, and even more interestingly, Hebrew doesn't use vowels in, as letters normally, so that you literally can't even read the text unless you know where to divide it up into words, unless you know how it's properly vowelized. And then you can read words that you can translate and that you can assemble into sentences and verses, and that leads to the English translation that we all know and love.
1: Even though it's hard, uh, reading the King James Version... Um and it is hard in a lot of ways for me. I've sat down and I've I've read, and it reads hard, but it
2: does make sense. That's right. That's right. And there's not, and there's absolutely every reason to believe that the sages and scholars who worked on these texts, worked on these translations, um, did the absolute best job they could. But you have it's necessary to understand that there is a very ancient teaching about the Hebrew Bible, which is the source of all of this, that very few non-Jews and even not very many Jews really know about. Um, I can probably dig up a quotation here directly for you if if someone calls in and really wants it, but there's a a Kabbalistic teaching that the very worst tragedy that ever occurred in Judaism was not the golden calf, which everyone would think of as the worst thing that you could do, but but the rabbis actually taught that it was the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, the Septuagint translation, the original translation from Hebrew into a modern language, Mm -hmm. that was the worst tragedy. Why do they say that? Because they said the original Hebrew wasn't just a narrative story. It also included patterns in the sequences of letters, which when you make a translation are lost. And the tragedy was that the Hebrew Bible became known only as a narrative story. Now, I'm not disputing the narrative story. Um, That's not an issue here. But in fact, the original teachings are, that it was more than that. So right. When you make a translation, obviously you lose. You scramble up the letters. It's not even the same alphabet.
1: All right. When you look at the original text, how do you find these codes?
2: Well, it's really really quite simple. Um, first, let's describe the, the statistical codes that have been reported on in Michael Josden's book and right. in, in the statistics. They're very simple. What, what the statisticians did is they asked the computer to search for a wide range of possible so-called letter, equal interval letter skip patterns. They would count through, say, ten letters yes. and write down a letter. And then they count another ten letters and write down the letter that occurred there. Right. And they would find that these repeated skip patterns spelled out words. For instance, the word Torah is spelled out at a skip of 49 letters, starting pretty close to the beginning of Genesis.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It is repeated at the beginning of Exodus. Um, and it's repeated in an inverted or a related form as you go through the five books. Um, And and the skip is always the same. It's 49 letters. In fact, if you actually examine a table of these so-called equal interval letter skip patterns, you find they fall into two main classes, and this is very important in understanding what's going on. One class is letter skip patterns that are long, say 26 letters or 49 or 50 letters. Those patterns are very statistically robust. One can demonstrate with a high degree of statistical reliability that those patterns can't be accidental. They are really, and I use the word advisedly, woven into the text. Woven,
1: right. We, I remember that from the last this is interview. This very important. Woven in. I, it is important. But here's my question.
2: Um, well, let me, let me finish. The other patterns, the ones that Mr. Drosman and many other people yes. have gotten very excited about are not these patterns. They're what are, these, are they? They are patterns that were also discovered statistically, but they are of much lower statistical reliability because it's not really known what proper statistical test to make. All of statistical science is based on having a model. If you, if you open up any introductory book on statistics, the first thing the author will say in the introduction, in the preface, in the first chapter is, the statistics is a wonderful science, but let's not forget, We can't rely on statistical discoveries unless we have a model that helps to explain the context for the discovery. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the missing piece. Without a context, we can't sort gratuitous, fortuitous, accidental, coincidental codes from really important ones.
1: Well, all right. My question then was, uh, how does Michael Drosman come up with Bible codes which seem to predict future events, prophecy, and you come up with Bible codes that uh, reach an entirely different conclusion. Uh, in, in other words, if there is a statistical
2: reality... Yeah, let's tell them what the conclusion is so they can compare the two... The two right, yeah, what is your... All right, fine. Right, that's important. That, we're, yes, we're, yes, it, it so is. many people know this. Yes, it now, is. No. Let, let me use an example that I think the majority of the people listening will be familiar with. Um, this is not from Jewish tradition, but it, it's based on Jewish tradition, and it's, and it's Christian teaching. The idea is that the Torah, if I can use it in this context, is not a fish of prophecy. It's a fishing pole of prophecy. It's not that they wrote down explicit prophecies. People mistake this. It's not a book like Nostradamus that's telling us explicitly what's going to happen on a particular date in the future. That's a fish. Instead, my theory is that the text is woven as a kind of exercise that a person can do when they read the text, and that that leads them to a state of consciousness that can enable them possibly, if they're a sage, if they're appropriately saintly, that can lead them to a a state of prophecy possibly. Now, I don't even know if such such a thing really can happen, but there's a big difference between a list of prophecies that are a bunch of fish piled up and a method by which appropriately educated and caring and saintly people could achieve the level of knowledge of some of the sages and prophets of Judaism and later Christianity All right, Christianity to, cut, well. to cut
1: it short, if I can recall properly, uh, in the last program uh,
2: there was an aha
1: moment, which came in the second hour, in which you talked about geometric patterns, That's right. uh, which would enable a person to, in effect, and I'm going to be simplistic here, but enter an altered state, and for example, with respect
2: to Genesis, literally experience, creation. Let's tell the story, because people actually, we, we got an enormous response to that show, um, close to 500 inquiries, um, uh, which which I'm really quite overwhelmed with, and I appreciate it. But of. I do have that but about they asked right. This question, they asked this question, can I tell a little more detail about um, this experience that's known in the Talmudic tradition, which most people don't know about. There's a famous story about Rabbi Akiba, now, Rabbi Akiba was a great sage. He was one of the people attributed uh, as, as one of the people that we believe wrote down some of the Kabbalistic, some of the more so-called mystical texts in Judaism, the, the Sefer Yetzirah, for instance. He was known to be an expert on the alphabet. Okay. Um, he is mentioned in the Talmud. He lived um, less than a century after um, the founder of Christianity and, 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 and that whole circle, so it's in the same period in in. Um, in the same cultural context, actually, um, he is said to have gone had done a special meditation. Now first let 's ask ourselves, where would a Orthodox rabbi find a meditation that they would dare to do? Yes. Well, obviously only looking into traditional texts. they weren 't going to do something they made up themselves. there's a lot of teachings that you shouldn 't do that. You bet. So we have to assume Rabbi Kiba looked into the Torah and used his knowledge of the alphabet and somehow was able to do this so called par days which is the root of our word, Paradise, and it refers to the Garden of Eden, the Pardes Meditation. And the story goes that Rabbi Akiba and three companions, who were essentially as qualified as he was, great sages, um, endeavored to do this Pardes Meditation. And the experience was so overwhelming that the first person that attempted this, didn't come out of the meditation. They, they died in the meditation. They were lost in paradise, never came back. The second person was a little more grounded and they made it back, but they were so overwhelmed by what they saw and experienced in this, this high state of consciousness that, that they became um, kind of a space case, we call them today. They, they were intoxicated with the experience. They were overwhelmed by it. They, they were not rational anymore. The third companion... Came back okay, but he was so shaken, um, his name is Acher, I believe, he was, which means the other. He was so shaken that he lost his religious faith entirely and only came back with his rational mind intact. In fact, because his logic and his knowledge were still so good, he's actually still quoted in the Talmud, even though he's no longer considered to be a religious Jew. But he lost his faith. He lost his faith. Only Rabbi Akiba, who's the hero of the story, comes back whole because he enters whole. That's the, that's the story. He does this meditation. Now, Rabbi Akiva is a key figure in something else. This is during the time of the wars between the Roman Empire and, and, and Judea and, and, and the Jewish population. Stan, can you explain to me, can I stop you and ask you
1: what you could imagine uh, the experience would be the paradise experience or the experience of Genesis the or the, value. The, the understanding of uh, all of creation that would cause you to lose your faith.
2: Well, um, it's sort of like having maybe a bad acid trip, to use a modern metaphor, where a person comes back so shaken that it's not that they lose their faith, it's that they can't face it anymore. They're, they're in a state of, of... They're literally overwhelmed emotionally and, be, and become cold emotionally because they can't deal with it. Um, I, I, maybe you could say they were burned out. I hope I'm not being disrespectful here it was really quite a different circumstance
1: well but it would be you would imagine no matter uh, how shocking it would be uh, it would be confirmation of everything that we all want to know about confirmation of life after death confirmation of what's in the uh, Bible in Genesis confirmation of so many things that it's hard to imagine it could turn out to be a negative particularly to the degree that you
2: would lose well, your faith,
1: that only it would reinforce your faith. It's hard to imagine you would lose your faith.
2: Well, I don't know all of the story and all of the details. Um, uh, we'll pick
1: up on this after the bottom of the hour. We're at the bottom of the hour. We've got a break here. Networks have to do that. Stand by, Stan.
0: Stand by, stand. Stan Tennant is my guest. We're talking Bible codes. We'll be right back. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from July 8, 1997. Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from July 8, 1997. I
1: wonder if you can understand the profound nature of what we're talking about. I wonder how many of you remember interviews uh, done long, long ago now uh, with many very famous prophets. I wonder if any of you recall that, for example, uh, Gordon Michael Scallion. Uh, with regard to his prophecy, claimed that prior to uh, acquiring the power that he got, he saw an array of geometric patterns. Do any of you recall that? If not, know it now. One of the great prophets, I believe, modern day, is Gordon Michael Scallion, and uh, he told his story, weaved his tale. As for you, Stan. Um, very powerfully and one of the things he said with regard to the condition that allowed him to acquire his prophecy was the vision of geometric patterns that appeared to him and then, and then he began to acquire the power what Stan Tenen is talking about is geometric patterns as well leading to a state that one can reach called um, Pandey's meditation, we'll talk more about that in a moment If it seems confusing to you, stick with us and we'll try and uh, make it clear. Uh, It's finally all clearing up for me. Back now to Stan Tennant. Stan? Hi. Um, As as you heard me mention on the air, um, one of the guys that I consider to be the real McCoy is Gordon Michael Scallion. And prior to his... He used to describe uh, his ability to do prophecy um, as seeing three TV screens. It was just the the analogy he used so that the audience could understand it. Uh, One would be brighter and colorful, and the other two faded and less likely, uh, indicating there is nothing locked in stone, but the most likely prophecy was the brightest picture that he would see. But before he acquired this ability to prophesize, he had an experience where he just about died, and he was in the hospital and saw this array, this incredible array of geometric patterns. That's exactly what he said. And it, it sort of resonated when you talked about geometric patterns uh leading to this was it Panday's meditation? Parday's. It's, pardes, it's the word, I'm sorry. Paradise. I'm sorry. Par. Okay. Parday's. Par- say paradise. Paradise. Yeah. It. it refers to the Garden of Eden. Um, and all of a sudden that clicked with me, and I wonder if he entered that same sort of meditative state. Uh, of course, there's no way to know, but I'm just well, I'm just relating that to you that that he made a very he, he went out of his way to be very specific about this incredible. Um, array of uh, geometric shapes that he saw
2: you're, you're making an excellent point um, I, I, have, I have no knowledge of, of Gordon Michael Scallion's work it's not something that I've studied and, um, so I can't say anything explicit but in fact you're making an excellent point it's not just um, my Gordon Michael Scallion but um, ordinary mathematical researchers have reported that if you turn over in your mind geometric forms you sometimes have an unusual experience. Um, there are some hyper-dimensional drawings, um, stereograms, hyper-stereograms, in a book by Brisson um, called Hypergraphics, I believe, mm-hmm. that, um, I, as I remember, some of the researchers described as it was causing in themselves unusual experiences. But, you know, there's a very big difference, uh, and Judaism makes the point of this, and I think Christianity and Islam do too, between the ex- particular experience of a talented individual, um, such as maybe Gordon Michael Scallion is, and a tradition that can be passed on from generation to generation that codifies a particular meditation that has a particular and safe result within the context of the tradition. Well, is, so, it, is it
1: not possible, Stan, that Stan Tannen, uh might make his way to this particular pardes meditation? Uh, in a very specific mathematical way and somebody else might, in effect,
2: stumble on to what... Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the key, though, is that if you want, let's say, and this is part of the discussion that, that I have when I'm trying to explain to people what it is I think i found here, um, because, after all, what I've come upon, and which we haven't discussed this evening yet, is the, a means of understanding the source of the Hebrew, Greek, and Arabic alphabets. And the question becomes, well, why do you create an alphabet? Why do you why do you write things down? And how do you do that? Well, you do that because you want to pass something on explicit. You don't sure. want just a personal experience. Sure. You know, you could have a near death experience, falling off a donkey, but it's not necessarily repeatable. I understand. All right. Well, if you want, if if you're talking about a spiritual tradition as opposed to a talented individual, then you have to record somehow the the um, exercise that leads to the experience. And the question is, can you do that in words? Um, no, you really can't. Most people who've had these extraordinary experiences say that they're ineffable, that they're not describable in words. So you have to create a kind of notation, not that describes the experience, but that's kind of like Arthur Murray teaching people to dance the waltz by yes. painting footprints on the ballroom floor. Uh, of course. Well, that's what we think is going on here, that, in fact... Like what happens spontaneously to certain talented individuals, there is a long tradition, a Torah tradition, later the Christian Bible, later the Quran and, and other groups that are related to these two, that have explicit... They, they've charted out a kind of science of consciousness. You know, when I was listening to your discussion, your advertisement for the Magellan navigation system, it yes. really hit me directly. We're talking about navigating here. Oh, yes. We're talking about these codes not being prophecy per se, but rather a navigation system by which a person who is prepared and talented might be able to achieve that level of, of consciousness. Have you reached it? Well, I can tell you I've had certain experiences, but I'm, um, I'm not that saintly a person. Um, when I first came on this, um, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I had been studying these patterns in the text of Genesis right. for about um, ten years. Mm-hmm. and um, I read at one point that some of the teachings were that if you were just able to master the letters of the alphabet, sometimes you could have a, a Kabbalistic experience, whatever right. that might be. Right. So I said, okay. Um, um, I hadn't really paid a lot of attention to it. I didn't really expect anything to happen, but I realized I did have to learn how to at least draw the Hebrew letters properly. Okay. And that, you know, sort of... To, to be able to read Shakespeare, you have to be able to read and write English. Sure. All right? So I sat myself down. This was before computers at a drawing board with a, um, a calligraphy pen and a lot of paper. And I literally sat there for 16 hours drawing over and over again the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And what happened was at some point I got, I got kind of dizzy, and um, I, I really didn't know what was happening. Um, I was very tired, I was sleepy, um, maybe this was based on sleep deprivation, I don't know. Um, and I, I felt that I had, I really don't have good language for this, Yeah, I guess I'm making my point, you can't describe these things. I felt like I was kind of in a, in a tube, in a tunnel, a vertical tunnel, the walls of which were turning around me and they were made of kind of flame. And they consisted of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet connected one to the other in a a kind of continuous stream that that I was in the middle of. And I got really terrified. I mean, this had never happened to me before. This is not what I do all the time. Um, I I don't know how long I was in the experience, but I remember I literally jumped out scared and ran out and and grabbed my wife and hugged her. Um, I, I was really quite shaken by it. And then I spent the next couple of years trying to somehow remember what it was that I thought I saw in this experience. <laughs> and even though it didn't give me the explicit details of what I found later, it kept me going, it kept me looking, it kept me open to the possibility. So that's what happened to me. I I I'm, I'm not a regular meditator. Did uh, you
1: I was gonna ask, did you pursue it again?
2: Well I did. In fact what I did is um I'm I'm a technically-minded person. I attempted to do something scientific.
1: Yeah, your BS is in physics. Uh, Yeah, it's just a BS.
2: I've done a little extra work, but it's only a bachelor of science. I'm not a a PhD genius in in physics either. Um, (laughs) What I attempted to do was make a kind of um, graph paper that would enable me to more easily draw the Hebrew letters. And I found that what I ended up drawing was a series of circles. And when I looked at this circle pattern and stared at it and, and and meditated on it, it did kind of elicit the same feeling that I'd had before. And I still have the pattern. We actually published it in our journal a number of years. It a so.
1: circle pattern. It,
2: it was just, well, what it, what it did is it, it basically was designed to confuse the eye so you couldn't gain a sense of perspective.
1: May I stop you and present you with something that I would like you to consider, uh, Stan? Um... I had a guest, a guest on named Doug Ruby. Uh, Doug Ruby, uh, has deciphered crop circles. Now this is not going to be as outlandish as you might imagine. If you draw a circle, and then you draw, um a half circle above it, or a, a, a and then a half circle below it, Um now, that's what you've got. You've got a circle, and, and you've got um, a half, uh, how do I describe this? <laughs> hemisphere. hemisphere. Yeah, a half, ha- half hemisphere. <laughs> and and half another, another half. Um, you have nothing, but if you take that and you spin it, mm-hmm. what you then have is two complete circles. As you achieve rotation, as you begin to rotate this, suddenly you have, uh, in the spinning, two complete circles, Mm-hmm. Discernible to the eye, mm-hmm. and what Mr. Ruby discovered—he's uh, an airline pilot, by the way—is uh, he discovered that if you take crop circles uh, and uh, put them on paper and go through an elaborate business and end up spinning them, they suddenly make all the sense in the world. And isn't it, isn't it a little bit like the way you have approached the Bible? In other words, these are patterns as well, and they're not understood until you do the right
2: thing with them. Well, that, that general principle is correct. Um, I, it's, what we're doing is, is not exactly like that. I, I'm trying to be a no. little more um, um, regular in the way I've been investigating this, and I haven't seen Doug Ruby's work either. But I have done some work with spinning geometric patterns, and, in fact, they are very evocative. Um, um, And they do sort of pull some of these patterns out from a flat pattern into three dimensions. That's right. But um, if you really understand how this spinning process works, though, um, what we can spin in three dimensions is only a a minor idea of how you can spin things. There are more complicated spins that one can do to a form that bring it to higher dimensions more fully so that there's a little more formal process that one can use. Yes, the way you look at something is going to affect what you see. That's a very important principle, and and we all have to recognize that. Um, Whether you look at pi as a random number, error is completely determined, depends not on the sequence of digits, but on what you know about them. If you don't know how far from the decimal point the digits in pi are, then you can use that as a a quasi-random number, and people do that. As soon as you're told that it's so many digits from the decimal point, it becomes exactly pi, and it's totally non-random. The difference between pattern and not pattern is as much in our mind as it is in data. That's why this is a science of consciousness and not just science per se, because there's an interaction with us and, 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 and these patterns. So I, don't, I can't tell you much about the crop circles, but I can tell you the principle is correct. How you look at something does depend, does, does affect what you see. No doubt about that, and that's true in science in general.
1: All right. Um. Did you, you? You said you're trying to remember. You you had the beginning of this experience, or had an experience. How much of it, other than what you just told me, were you able to recall? Or are there things you can recall that simply can't be said in words?
2: Well, certainly the fear and, and my, my being overwhelmed by the experience is something I I can only say the words, but I I can't. You know, it, it, you don't have that experience until you have it. Um, no, there really wasn't a lot. I wasn't really prepared for it, um, and um, in fact, it spurred me to get more prepared. That's one of the reasons why I decided to take Judaism more seriously, which was my background culturally, but I wasn't really a religious person at the time. And I realized that in order to be able to make sense of what I was seeing and experiencing and looking at, I had to um, stop reinventing the wheel and go back and read and <laughs> study what other people had done and yes. get myself grounded. yes. Otherwise, even if I could pull this off again, um, I didn't want to come back like one of Rabbi Akiva's friends, dead or crazy. Um, I wanted, if I was going to be able to do something, which I would still like to be able to do perhaps later in my life, is be whole enough like Rabbi Akiva was to be able to come back whole and intact. Um, I guess the modern terminology, um, I, I forget whether this is from Robin Anton Wilson or someone else, is that you don't carry weapons into chapel perilous. if you you go into a spiritual place defended with materiality then you're going to get whooped by materiality Mm. if you go in open and undefended if you're a saintly person not faking it really there then it can open for you then it can be a real and positive experience and I think that's what the story of Rabbi Akiva is about whether people were really fully prepared or not or only really appeared to be prepared but weren't completely prepared and the whole point of the Rabbi, of uh, uh, the Kardi's experience, though, I didn't, I didn't really get to finish the story. Most people end the story where we stopped, but there's more to it. And this is what should, should interest our audience and why we have some reason to believe that we are talking about something that may be of a special um, nature and consciousness here. Rabbi Kiba, after this event, goes on to have additional history. Um, he dies tragically. He's literally skinned alive by the Romans, and it's a very painful situation. And he, he says he's, he's in ecstasy at the time. He's not really feeling the pain of it, which is hard for us to understand. I don't, I don't think I could, I could undergo that and, and feel good about it. No. <clears throat> but before this all happens, he appoints a Jewish general, a guy named Ben Kasiba, as Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba is a Hebrew-Aramaic term that means son of the star. And my feeling is that he was talking about the same... Prophetic star as became important in the Christian tradition as designating the founder of Christianity. Um, I think that, that that's part of what happened. The story in Judaism, however, is not the same. Um, the Romans eventually do kill Bar Kokhba, and so he's not the Messiah, and that's the end of the story. Except there are diaries kept by one of the most famous Kabbalists of all time, one of the leaders of the Jewish community um, in Islamic Spain. Rabbi Nachmanides, Um, he kept diaries of a disputation that he was ordered to participate in under the Inquisition.
1: Disputation?
2: Well, uh, during the Inquisition, they would set up these kind of courts where the Jews would have to prove, try to prove that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Oh, yes. and And the Christians would have to try to prove that Jesus was. And, of course, usually if the Jews didn't agree, they got killed. Uh, so Stretch them out on racks, that sort of thing. Yeah, that well. But right. fortunately for Rabbi Nachmanides, this was done in the court of King James II of Aragon, who was an extraordinary leader, and who kept his word and saw to it that the Jews weren't killed afterwards. But there was a persecution, and Nachmanides had to flee. However, during the course of the disputation, and this is this is documented, at one point, Pablo Christiani, the the representative of the church, asked Rabbi Akiba, um, isn't it true that the Talmud teaches that the Messiah will be born when the Temple is destroyed? Mm-hmm. And Rabbi I'm Nachman- not Rabbi but Rabbi Nachmanides um, says, yes, that's true. And then Pablo Christianity asks Nachmanides, well, the Temple was destroyed then about a thousand years ago. Um, why, why do you object to Jesus? And Nachmanides says, well, it's it's not necessarily true that a person acts in the world when they're born. Um, and Pablo Christianity, in complete frustration, says to Nachmanides, Well, where's he been all this time? <laughs> and Nachmanides replies, and this is where we get back to the story. The Mes- 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 Messiah, Mashiach, is waiting in par waiting in Gan Aden. <laughs> the implication is that the experience of this opening to a higher reality, which we've all been promised in the Western faith, is not necessarily tied to an individual which is the founder of the Christian faith but maybe related to the experience the experience the far days experience all right stand hold on
1: we're at the top of the hour we'll be right back
0: you're listening to Art bells somewhere in time tonight featuring a replay of post to coast am from July 8 1997 presents Art Bell Somewhere in Time. Tonight's program originally aired July 8th, 1997.
1: My guest is Stan Tennant. Stan uh, has deciphered Bible codes uh, from original uh, Aramaic text. I believe that's correct. I hope that's correct. We'll ask about that in a moment. From which it is possible to discern geometric patterns. These geometric patterns can lead one into something called the par days experience or meditation which actually allows you uh, according to Stan, to uh, achieve an understanding or no more than an understanding experience for example creation a state from which uh, not everybody returns intact and He can correct me, and I know I'm probably going down some some wrong roads with this. I'm trying desperately to grasp it, and I think I have, but just when I think I have, I'm throwing a curve. Ah, Anyway, we'll get back to Stan in a moment. It's absolutely fascinating stuff, folks. Art, at about 5.30 this morning, my wife came into my den looking for me to find me immersed in Stan Tannen's tape, The Alphabet in Our Hands, third viewing of it. He's not only a genius, as noted before, but he is poetic in his presentation. I don't know if you've had time to look at the copy of Geometric Metaphors, but if you did and were intrigued by it, you'll be blown away by The Alphabet. Uh, thank you, Daryl. And then there's one other art. I have heard about a secret biblical code for years now. One thing doesn't seem right to me. The Bible originally had around 135 books before it was revised by church officials over the years. With this thought in mind, could you please ask Stan how the coding could possibly still be intact when portions of the Bible have been withheld and the Bible revised to just 66 books? That's from Tim in... Uh, lakeville minnesota the answer is uh it's really not
2: intact or is it stan well um i'm not an expert on the christian bible and there are some differences but i can tell you with regard to the torah text that um the oldest copies that we have now go back about a thousand years i think one of them is the so-called leningrad codex which is i believe still in leningrad which is probably got a different name now um and um In fact, there are many books that were not included in the main Hebrew Bible, even in the Hebrew tradition, but they do become part, at least some of them become part of what's called the Tanakh, which is not just the five books of Moses, but it includes the writings and the Proverbs and and other additional materials um, that aren't really part of the Bible per se in in the Hebrew tradition. Now, um, the problem with translations, um, I think we mentioned earlier, once you start translating these texts and the original is actually Hebrew um, and/ or Aramaic, they use the, the Hebrew and Aramaic alphabets are the same. I
1: said Aramaic. I, yeah, I was so it doesn't it really make
2: any difference. The mm-hmm. language is Hebrew. In fact, the Talmud is written in, mostly in Aramaic, and the Bible is almost entirely the Hebrew Bible is almost entirely in Hebrew. Um, the, the Hebrew Tanakh is almost entirely in Hebrew. the, the five books of Moses are entirely in Hebrew. I believe, again, I'm not, a, I'm not a real scholar of the details of the stories of the Bible. Um, what we're talking about is a woven structure right. supposedly coded into the sequence of letters of the Hebrew Bible before it was translated surely in the that, original Hebrew language.
1: Surely that would be lost
2: in translation. That's right. And that's one of the, one of the, one of the distinctions between um, the Jewish tradition and the other Abrahamic faiths is that Judaism includes the Talmud, the so-called Oral Torah, the Oral Bible, yes. which isn't accepted by Christians and Muslims, and is, is one of the, the things that divided our cultures um, centuries ago, so that you would get a different answer, perhaps, from a Christian or a Muslim than you would get from a rabbi on, on some of these questions. And I, I don't want to speak for others. I don't think that's appropriate. Um, let, let me um, go back to um, a couple of other things that, that you said. Um, the pardes meditation story, actually, although I was just telling it and paraphrasing it, it's not my story or my finding. This is actually written in the oral Torah, in the right. Talmud, right. in Aramaic. And you can, you can find references there and read, read it or read translations of it today. The word pardes isn't actually even a word. Um, it's our word, paradise, in English. But in fact, it's an acronym with the P, R, D, and S. that, again, the vowels don't appear in Hebrew, stand for story level, Hint level, discussion level, and foundation level. Now that foundation level, the S stands for sued, You sued, foundation. That's the sequence of letters that's not retained when you make translations. Um, That's the area that we're looking at. That's what the Bible codes researchers have found using their statistical methods have found codes in. It's not the story. It's not the words of the text that anybody's contesting or discussing here. It's the literally raw sequence of letters.
1: May I ask you this? Did Michael Drosnan, uh, to the best of your knowledge, uh, take his, uh, decipher his coding
2: from original Aramaic or not? The research papers on which Drosnan is reporting yes. were based on the Masoretic Hebrew text, okay. the, the standardized text accepted by Orthodox Jews throughout the world. How is uh, it possible...
1: Uh, Stan, that he came to one conclusion, as you pointed out earlier, fish, in essence, um, with very specific um, uh, predictions or, or prophecy, uh, actual words predicting, for example, uh, a Kennedy would be killed, um, whatever. And you, on the other hand, conclude that, no, this is a process uh, by which you can divine these things once you enter this state. In other words, how, if, if there is a code, how did the two of you disagree?
2: How... Right. Let me let me let me explain. In fact, you're you're putting your finger on a very important issue here. Um, what what the what Michael Drosden and most of the other people reporting on the statistically detected codes have done, probably innocently, I don't really know, is they've confused two different findings. There are really two different groups of codes. There are codes that are of very high statistical probability, Mm -hmm. which spell out simple words like the word Torah or the name of God, which everyone agrees are not accidental and are very real, and no one has any explanation for. Then there are these shorter codes, so-called, that seem to correlate with either rabbi's names or famous people's names with their birth dates or, with, or special events or some sort. These are not normal codes in the same sense. One, they're not really predictive. You need to know the event before you can find the pattern. Any scientist will tell you that that's very, very shaky. Then that's not science. It's not science. No, they've actually been sloppy in mixing up two different sets of findings. And what I'm doing is not statistically based at all. I didn't have knowledge of the statistics. The work wasn't even done. What I did was I came upon by basically really brute force methods. It took me almost 20 years of concentrated experimentation to find a way of relating the letters in a very simple sense uh-huh. that displayed these patterns. In other words, what I did is what... Let me, let me tell, the, tell the audience again, because this is, this is a very good lesson in, in spiritual growth, too. I didn't know it at the time. I, I came into this as a person with a bachelor's degree in physics with an experience making um, medical equipment and doing electronics and, and, that, and that sort of thing. And I had all kinds of technical um, tests that I had at my disposal that I could use to look for these patterns. And I tried every sophisticated test I, I could think of. And then, it one, I didn't succeed. And two, it finally dawned on me that I was being very arrogant here. I was presuming that I was the first person finding this stuff. It could have been known in the ancient world because they didn't have these sophisticated tests. And, in fact, that's silly. Um, What I was really looking for, which I didn't know at the time, was something that could have been known in the ancient world based on technology that they did have. Now... Once I realized that, I started doing things that were really simple, things that everyone does. Like? Like, for instance, all of us in our culture have the experience as children of making paper models, where the model is rigged for you to be able to assemble it, because sure. all you have to do, if you cut it out right, is put tab A in slot A, right. tab B in slot B, and the thing, the model, folds up into what was intended by the person who, who made it. Right. Well, that's what I ended up doing. After giving up on all of these sophisticated techniques, after being properly humiliated technically, I was humbled, I was, my arrogance was reduced, I spent a lot of time, and a lot of effort, talked to a lot of experts, got nowhere, I was reduced to doing, I, I used to tell people that this was like blithering idiot status. It was basically getting more childlike stance, and I, I started playing with it. And what I did is I wrote the letters of the Hebrew text out, one letter each, on a bead, on a bead chain, in order. And then I merely curled up the bead chain until the same letters lined up with each other. And just like voila, tab A and Friday. Voila. And when I did that, just like with the paper model that we all, you know, have, have used as children or seen someone use, the bead chain, the paper, folded itself up into a form that I could recognize. A geometric form. A geometric form, a very simple form. In fact, a very simple set of forms. That unfolded one to the other in a very simple, logical, and, and very universal and compact and elegant way. And what I found was, literally, what I'd been seeing all these years I'd been studying, all the sacred geometry, all the platonic solids, all the vortex forms, instead of just seeing this mishmash that I couldn't make sense of, bingo, the text of the Torah in Hebrew at the letter level, was producing these patterns in order, in a beautiful, elegant order, that unfolded naturally. Stand? Like looking at a living thing.
1: I understand. Is there a way, uh, for example, on a videotape, you may have already done it, uh, and that's what the the faxer may have been talking about, but is there a way, with computer, modern computer, computer graphic uh, demons, you you know, the graphic ability, to actually show this
2: We are working on a video right now, which we're hoping to make available to the cable stations and the networks when it's finished. No contracts have been signed. Um, I've been working with some people um, in Seattle and, and maybe in San Francisco who have been working on computer graphic animations that literally show how this first letter point in the text blossoms and unfurls like a living thing.
1: Is this not possibly dangerous, though? Uh, in other words, if you are able through computer graphics to actually show these patterns being put together, are you not liable to put the person viewing the tape uh, into what's called the pardee's meditation state? Has well, that, Has that
2: occurred to you? It has occurred, and it is a serious consideration. Um, my, my answer is I don't think there's much danger, and I'll tell you why. These these ideas were never really hidden or made secret. They mean they may have been certain circumstances in which they were. But in fact they're not made secret or kept secret or written in confusing terms in Kabbalistic or Sufi texts just to, just to keep them secret. The reason that these texts seem opaque to us is because most of us haven't done our homework. If you were to look at Shakespeare and you didn't know English, it would be opaque to you. There's a kind of natural safeguard built into this system where you can only really appreciate it To the level appropriate to you. Now, if you're really a bully and you force yourself into Chapel Perilous with weapons blazing, you're going to get whooped. You bet. Um, Okay, well that that's a careless person in any context. That's not just here. But if you're a gentle person, if you step humbly, and if you base your growth and exploration of these ideas on integrity, then they will open for you safely, and that's the whole point. If you act recklessly, if you act in a foolhardy way when you're dealing with important spiritual concepts, yes, you can get in trouble, you can get hurt. But if you act within, say, one of the reasons I'm grounding my work in Judaism is because I am fearful of doing damage to myself or others, and I want to take a time-tested path that is going to help to keep me in a safe bounds with what I'm doing. I'm trying not to be arrogant. In fact, to the extent you're arrogant this understanding closes to you, and all you get is the external shell. And there are a whole bunch of spiritual gurus out there that are selling shells, if I can use that term. <laughs> yes, you can. Um, and, and, in fact, we are suffering. One of the reasons we haven't done the animation so far is because we haven't got any funding. And one of the reasons our funding... Dried up was because a, a plagiarist took this work and made believe he was us, and I, he's still I doing can't, it. I so, can't, you know you can't you can't win with that. You have to you just have to go forward.
1: I can imagine though that with computer three D graphics, you could take the letters, you could form the shapes, show how they're formed. Yes. Uh, but I can also imagine
2: that it would potentially be dangerous for the viewer. Well, um, it could be. But let me ask you this. Um, The rabbis teach that there's a common everyday experience that's actually very close to prophecy, which we all have. Which is? called dreaming. Dreams, um, particularly lucid dreams, are considered in Jewish tradition, and this is just a symbolic number, to be 160th part of prophecy. What is lucid dreaming? Well, lucid dreaming is where you become aware that you're dreaming, that you act um, with volition uh, in, in the dream to some extent. You take charge of the dream. You become aware that that you're you're actually asleep, and that this is not not the waking world. Okay, okay. you are
1: actually asleep or not? Uh, Is it a what state? How would you describe the state? Is it something you could do during the daylight hours with your eyes open, or is it something that would occur at night
2: in a dream state? Well, I guess it depends on how practiced you are. There are several really good books out. And, it, and there's been some first class research done on lucid dreaming I think there's a, a doctor Ola Burge I believe uh, connected with Stanford that's written a number of books I don't know him personally and, um, but uh, my understanding is that there's a body of modern scientific work that helps a person to gain access to lucid dreaming um, and that enables them to, to grow with that with that expansion in their conscious life um, uh, I can only you know, explain what my personal experiences have been, which have been very limited. But I know one thing is really striking about lucid dreaming, and that is the access to it is the same in the Talmudic tradition from the Middle East, coming to us thousands of years ago, as it is in Carlos Castaneda's recent works a few decades ago yes. on the Yaki Indians. In both cases, in the Talmud and in Castaneda, the recommendation is if you would like to become lucid in your dream, remember to look at your hand in your dream. And that's what takes us right back to the beginning of our discussion because, in fact, the Hebrew and later Greek and Arabic letters appear to be shadows of our hand. And if we look at these letters in our waking life and look at these letters in our mind's eye, then we're going to open ourselves to lucidity in this life and in our dream life. And maybe when we qualify these processes, processes will open for us to a deeper level. That, that's at least my, my conjecture. I mean, I, I don't know of anybody who's actually taken this all the way. Um, we don't have any messiahs around at the moment. I, I think that's probably a good thing. Um, there's a teaching that, that the messi- messianic experience is always available, and when we merit it, it'll happen. Um, I know others have different teachings. That's a, that's a Jewish teaching. Um, it may be that the parades meditation itself is the messianic experience, and that we're all ultimately intended to emulate the founders of our faiths and walk in the shoes of a Moses or a Jesus or a Muhammad, or who were, depending on your tradition and beliefs, uh, had access to these levels. Um, maybe that's what's coming forward in this century. The rabbis have taught for several hundred years now that the modern age is going to bring these kabbalistic, these these um, mystical, so-called. They're not really mystical, but That's a word that's used. These teachings to everyone. It's the the scientific world that's going to open the emotional world, open the locks of these codes, and enable us to regain our heritage. All right. Um, What
1: I want to do when we come back, Stan, is ask you about NDEs, the near-death experience, and what you think that is. Uh, I have interviewed many, many, many PEs, And frankly, uh, what a lot like what you said you went through when you got
0: near or into the Pardes experience. We'll be back. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from July 8, 1997. Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from July 8, 1997. Are you grasping this? The original Aramaic text of the Bible.
1: Coding within it. Coding not complicated, but simple, actually. Uh, Designed to allow you to experience uh, what is written uh, in the Bible or to experience, if you will, paradise, or a creation to actually understand and become involved with the process as it was or is designed to be. Are you grasping this? We'll get back to my guest, Stan Tenen, in a moment. Back now to Stan Tenen. Stan, you're back on the air. All sure. right, um,
2: all right. Uh, Can I uh, make a, a couple of comments on, on what we left off with? You may. You were, you were mentioning near-death
1: experiences. Yes, near-death, and I want to interject one other um, aspect or question, and that has to do with soul travel. I've uh-huh. interviewed a bunch of people about soul travel, and the, the, the traveling um, with your soul seems very close to the NDE experience, both of which seem very close to
2: your Par's experience you're very insightful, and um, there, there are definite connections. Um, let me be clear with the audience though um, this is my understanding is a work in progress. I don't really have all the answers. I haven't experienced much revelation um, and i'm I'm speaking as a researcher, and some of what I'm saying is accomplished fact. We have been able to show that the coded patterns in the Hebrew Bible lead to the construction of the alphabet, for instance. But we haven't been able to, no one I know has done these meditations. Um, I've been studying this for nearly 30 years. Um, The sages of the Talmud um, were elderly, learned persons who were pious all their lives before they had access to these levels. So one of the real questions, which you mentioned earlier, is safety here. What's the difference between a haphazard approach and a safe approach.
1: I, I don't know, and I, I, I'll tell you well, this. I, I would not begin to try it, Stan. I wouldn't begin to try it. I'm nowhere near that fire. Well, I,
2: me too. That's how I <laughs> feel. I, I'm taking this step by step also. You know, in, in Jewish tradition, we read through the Bible every year in, in a cycle. And uh, in the last week or so, the, the, the portion that we read concerned the um, Levites, the, the sons of, of Aaron, I believe, that um, offered strange fire. And were destroyed, um, and that's the point here. If you are fortunate and talented, um, and you um, have an experience on your own, that's wonderful. For someone else to try to do what you did, though, may not be appropriate to them. In order for it to not be strange fire, not be just somebody's personal experience, but rather a tradition we can pass on, we can all grow from. Um, that's still alive, thousands of years, you know, later at our time. Um, The the point is, we want to ground what we're doing in the traditional knowledge of these traditions, of of the Bible, of the Torah, of of our our sages. We want to take their advice, we want to do it step by step, and we want to, what I think our sages would say, amounts to perfect our character, because there's a direct relationship between this near-death experience, and how dangerous it is, and one's ego, Mm -hmm. one's or put on the other side, wants integrity. Here, here. A person who is very egocentric, who is looking for power and control, they have a very hard time with these experiences. They're shattering experiences. Mm-hmm. A, a mellower person, a person who has been humbled a little in their life, who's not so haughty spiritually or intellectually, tends to have a gentler, safer time of these experiences. And so, one of the the prerequisites for these experiences to open for you, um, for anybody, is the intention to develop your integrity, your emotional and intellectual honesty. Um, Let's talk about the codes. The very first letter of the Hebrew Bible, <clears throat> the first letter of the word we translate in the beginning, mm-hmm. is the letter bait, B, B, bait, Beta bait in Greek, bet in Hebrew, B in English. It means a house, and it represents the distinction between inside and outside in every, every archetypal way possible. A person who's having a near-death experience, their skin, like Rabbi Akiba when he died, their skin is dissolving. Their inside and outside is becoming the same thing. That's why we call it ego death. Because one's ego literally melds back into one's, I don't know what the right term is, call it soul. This experience happens to everyone when they die. It happens to some of us during life in traumatic situations, uh, accidents, surgery, um, a many number of things. Um, There are rituals under which these kinds of experiences have been encouraged in various cultures. There, there are um, current peyote rituals in in some of the Amerindian cultures. There are um, there were the use of of ergotamine in ancient Egypt. Um, The Greeks had their soma. Um, The Eastern traditions have various agents and drugs they sometimes use in a ritual situation. I'm not talking about experimentation here. Um, As initiators, Um, in our society too, um, heavy doses of of narcotics during surgery may be a cause of some of these experiences, these floating experiences, or trigger them or open to them. So it it can be an accident, it can be a trauma, it can be a shock, it can be um, any kind of initiator. But these things are not repeatable. If you want to hand down a tradition, a safe path... A path that leads to, if I can use that term in in, in a general context, leads to God, however you understand that, and not to some substitute or second-rate deity, if I can even conceive of that. It's like a plant. I'm reaching for the real sun in the sky and not for neon light that make it turned out at somebody's whim. Then I need to record that safe path. That's what these hand gestures do. They have functioned like Arthur Murray painting footprints on the ballroom floor to teach us how to do the foxtrot. But instead, they enable us to move from mental state to mental state in our mind what a real, serious, non-mystical meditation is, an exercise, a dance in the mind that leads to a particular feeling experience. And that's what um, the Western traditions, the Abrahamic traditions, have recorded that's the fishing pole that they've given us. It's not one or two prophecies. It's not a Nostradamus laundry list that we get. It's rather, to the extent that we have integrity, it's our access to experience the prophetic state for ourselves and to learn how to teach others to reach for the same goal. That, that's part of what is the positive side of this.
1: What percentage of people on the planet right now would you guess are... Prepared uh, to enter that state and come out whole.
2: Well, um, I don't. I really don't know. Um, you know, it would be pretty arrogant of me to say it takes a guy that's had a lot of schooling um, to, to do this, because that would mean me. Um, I, I wouldn't exclude anyone. Uh, I would say um, a child could could do this, maybe innocently and thus safely. Mm-hmm. I'd say maybe there are. are um, Tribal traditions, um, indigenous traditions. Today, <clears throat> I, I think there are many um, very high practicing Buddhists who maybe could do this. I would suspect people close to the Dalai Lama might be able to, to reach these levels.
1: What about Native Americans with
2: their sweat lodge? Uh, I, I I think it's possible. Um, surely um, the kinds of, of discussions that Costaneda was sharing with us would lead one to believe that there are people who can be warriors. Who can be impeccable, which means honest, which means having integrity? Right. Um, who can do these things? Right. I think that um, it would be arrogant of me to say that there's any soul that's permanently lost. If you believe in a transcendent God and God isn't a little God, then then anything is really possible. The odds may be infinitesimal. Well, I uh, hate to guarantee I, anything. Yeah,
1: I hate to say this, Dan, but I think that if every American uh, <laughs> were to suddenly have this experience, uh, 90% of us would be. Uh, lost in the netherworld and utter vegetables when we came back. That's the hard days.
2: That's why the story of of Rabbi Kiba and his three companions is to tell us what happens if we think we're ready, but we're not quite ready. Exactly. Um, But I'm not going to judge other people on that. I know people that um, I would never have guessed would be as spiritually open and advanced as they turned out to be when I first saw them. And I know other people who are high and mighty and have all kinds of credentials and as far as I can tell, maybe it's just my limitation, but they don't appear to know much at all. Well,
1: okay, ready or not, I still have to say again, if you were actually able to produce a videotape, uh, with the geometric patterns, uh, you might be producing something extremely dangerous, uh, for somebody to view. And even somebody who is not ready might view it and, uh, sitting there in some level of concentration on these geometric patterns, they might slip into a place they can't come back from.
2: Well, you're both right, but I think you're you're making a presumption you don't have to make. I'm I'm just making a a guess. Um, You know, many of our great mystics have described their opening to these views as simply their study of nature. They were looking at a flower unfurl. Sure. Well, in fact, watching a flower unfurl, can lead to very deep mystical experience Went sure. to looking at the Grand Canyon or at yes, the sir? stars at night. Yes, sir. Well, that's what the animation would show. I
1: know, but if you do your job correctly, you're going to impart not just the geometric patterns, but you're going to impart an understanding of what's being seen and if the person grasps that, they're going to they're going to have that experience.
2: Well, look, I don't want to argue with you. In fact, in a sense, you're right. Um, You do not want to give um, children a book of matches in a room full of gasoline. Yes, sir. And if I am telling you these are powerful effects and that they're real, then, yes, they definitely do have to be used with respect. One shouldn't power trip with this. One shouldn't try to, to exploit it. Um, they are very, very strong teachings that one doesn't exploit, these sort of teachings. <clears throat> um, I call it city tripping, S-I-D-D-H-I, where you learn some spiritual tricks and then use it to, make you, to enrich yourself. Well, that's an awfully cheap thing to do with something this valuable. Um, even if it doesn't hurt you, <clears throat> it's a foolish waste. What you want to do with these techniques is to perfect yourself, is to become a better person, a more giving, a more loving person. If you're a Jew, you want to be able to really appreciate what Moses left for us in a deep personal way. If you're a Christian, you want to emulate the path of of the founder of Christianity. You want to step in Jesus' footsteps, so to speak. If you're a, if you're a Muslim, you want to aspire to to the sublime submission of a Muhammad. That's that's your goal. And and so what you can do with what's really here, if you are humble, if you are caring is you can approach what these great sages and teachers have been able to do. And to the extent that you are gentle, you will only get the levels that are safe for you. If you're an arrogant person and I give you a gun or nuclear energy or um, a a spiritual teaching, you can abuse it. Um, the, The good guys and the bad guys usually have the same technology the Nazi scientists were working on the same theories of the atom bomb that our scientists were working on. Thank God they didn't get there. Uh, and, And I'm not saying that we necessarily have used this power so wisely ourselves either. But in fact, the good guys and the bad guys, Pharaoh and Moses, had the same magic, but they didn't have the same connection. And religion, in its best sense, is about connection and memory and waking up and integrating your own personality. It's not a matter of just following rules. That's how you start off. You you teach a kindergarten child the rules. But later you empower a person with these teachings. They're not supposed to end in Sunday school. They're supposed to start there. This is not something that you just study. Um, Learning to be a more honest person is a way of life. And you don't have to be a religious person to know that. All of our, our, our philosophers would teach that, whether they were religious in the Western sense or in any sense at all. Even atheists know that. So... These are our deep, deep principles that we all share regardless of our faiths or our beliefs. And, and, and we access them by, by the level of our integrity and our intention to be giving people and, and learning people and yielding people. And when we aspire to that, then life opens for us. And when we try to control and manipulate, when we get scared, as I was when I had this experience with the alphabet, then we limit ourselves. And we have to fight our way. We have to work our way back to knowledge. So, I mean, this is part of working our way back to knowledge. It's part of what the Kabbalists call Tikkun, um, repairing the world. And you repair the world by repairing yourself. Answer this. Uh, is there a way for
1: an ego-tripping, uh, self-absorbed, greedy, Uh, (laughs) You know, all the the modern attributes that we could uh, more or less assign to a lot of people who are walking around today. This kind of person, is there a way for this kind of person to approach uh, this experience um, and change slowly? Or if you begin to have this experience, uh, are you doomed?
2: I think that, again, really depends on on your inclination. If you approach this with respect... Oh. Then it will open slowly, and to the extent that you can handle it, if you jump in before you 're ready, you get into a race car and floor it before you know how to handle it on the track you 're going to crack up yep. um, that 's what 's happening with a number of of people and teachers that are out on the public scene now you see You see the lunacy on the internet internet there 's a wonderful communication pathway, mm-hmm. but it also contains stuff that you know will get us all in trouble i yep. mean uh, Humility, when you're handed something powerful, is very important. And a child that doesn't appreciate what matches can do in a room full of gasoline really shouldn't, isn't ready for those matches. So yes, you're right. You don't give a criminally insane person um, techniques for doing anything. You, you try to calm them down and get them sane first. But to the extent that we're, we are not insane people, that most people are normal people at various stages of development, in various places in life, and, and we're not gratuitously vicious or, or mean and that we're intending to be good people, even if we don't get it right every time, if you're humble and in you're in that position, and if you study seriously what, what our great sages have taught, and not just head off on your own, then yes, this can open in a very safe way. In fact, I think that's part of what the New Age is really intended to do, is to open this can of worms gently so that we can savor it. Worms, I use the Illusion there, but um, so we can experience it in in a way that's going to be helpful to us. So it doesn't burn us out. We we want to find safe uses for our modern technology. We we want to we want to do things that are going to help us to live together and build an ecology that works together. And these same principles that we're worried about hurting us are the same principles we have to master if they're going to help us.
1: Ah, uh, all right. I still think I would sit uh, and think a hundred times before I would watch. uh, Me too. uh, (laughs) too. (laughs) You too.
2: uh, uh, People say, Stan, haven't you done these meditations? You've been working on this for 30 years. I say, look, um, there, there are a lot of things that are really important in life that take more than 30 years to work on. Um, I'm a I'm a coward with regards to to pushing the limits here. Me too. Uh, I I but I'm not not so much a coward. I don't want to look. I try to be a
1: good person, but I I understand my own limitations. I have uh, stand a lot of. Uh, for example, um, I believe strongly in revenge. I I'm a very ambitious person. Um, I'm not. I don't think that. Uh, and in fact, I know that doesn't translate my case to greedy. I'm not greedy, but I am very ambitious. I want to be the very best at what I'm doing. And these are egotistical markers, I'm sure. And if I were to have that kind of experience, I'm not sure I'd come out on the other end at all whole. And so I would. I don't think I'd do it, Stan.
2: Well, you may, may be under or overrating yourself. Um, just because you want to be the best tree you can be doesn't make you a bad tree. Um, that's not well. That's I not know, a but, it, 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 okay. but if
1: you're prideful at your branches and your leaves, uh, then you may be in trouble.
2: Well, and if you're <laughs> aware of that, you may be starting to grow. Well, so why do we you say you're starting to grow <laughs> and are aware <laughs> of it? It's, see, no one ever gets there. The question is, do you intend to be going in the right direction? Okay. No one ever is going to be perfect. None of us are ever going to be. I don't know any saints. Um, there are supposedly hidden Sodik Thodic, saints in the world. And maybe they're they're hidden. We don't see them. Uh Um, But I don't know any saints. Um, I'm not going to be a saint. Um, But I do know I would prefer to learn to be a better person than to continue to be as limited as I've been in the past. Yes. To the extent I'm aware of those possibilities. And I would also like the people I know to be able to grow and, and improve and enjoy their lives better. I mean, grow and improve doesn't mean that he, who ends up with the most toys, wins. Sure. It means that we all can share an enjoyable and fulfilling life together.
1: So, again, encapsulated, uh, those who have had NDEs or have tra- ha- experienced soul travel or some other form of meditation that gives them great insight uh, or abilities, even even abilities, they come out of it able to prophesize or whatever, are, in effect, stumbling into it, uh, bumbling into it, and what you have is you have discovered a woven ability to actually enter this state at will uh through codes in the bible that sums it up
2: yeah um, basically this is the time proven path that the great sages of the western world have recommended it's 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 this path that that all of our great leaders looked into and and attempted to tread on the, um and so the, the benefit of this is that, that it's a tested formula. It's not somebody's Rube really? Goldberg machine, which right. may or may not work. All right. Uh, 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 no, nothing wrong with Rube Goldberg machines, but they're, they're not hard to trans- they're not easy to translate.
1: You've said the Great Pyramid has been called the Bible in Stone, and I have been drawn uh, Stan, to the, uh, the Giza area of Egypt. In fact, I am going. October 1st, with a lot of my fans, and when we get back, we'll talk about that. The Great Pyramid,
0: the Bible in Stone. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from July 8th, 1997. Mm -hmm. to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from July 8th, 1997.
1: We are going to get the phone lines open shortly for Stan Tennant. Something I think we did not do last time. I asked the audience last hour whether they were getting it. I said, are you getting this? The response to that so far is about 50-50. About half the people are saying, no, I didn't get it last time, and I don't get it this time, and it's boring. The other half of the people are saying, oh, my God, I get it. <laughs> you know, So it's either uh, an ecstatic, I get it reaction, or it's I don't get it at all. And I think my comment would be that those who don't get it at all are better off that way. Uh, we'll talk to Stan about that. I wonder if that's really true. For their own protection, it might be. But again, um, we are going to go to the phones here in a moment. Stan? Right. Um, again, it's coming in about 50-50 right now. I asked the audience, do you get it? About half of them get it and are awed by it, and the other half are bored and don't get it at all. And, you know, I, it set me to thinking here at the top of the hour, it may well be that those who don't get it and don't understand it are not, and, and shouldn't, um, that they should drift off into um, watching whatever TV program they're watching or whatever and stay in their little world and shouldn't even try to grasp it because for them it would be dangerous, too dangerous. Is that a,
2: is that a cruel well, way to put it? Um, I guess you could say that it's possible. Um, but in terms of any individual, um, they may just need a different it, 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 way to approach this. Um, I am a very analytic person. I'm coming from a particular perspective. Um, we are doing a particular thing that in this in this discussion that may not be their gate for understanding. Uh-huh. Or, you know, another thing is very important. People aren't the same throughout their lives. There are things that when we were children we could do that we can't do now. And there are things that as children we couldn't do that we can do and can understand now. Um, I've discovered in presenting this material that yes, there are some people who can't get it or should whatever, but that in fact, there's a kind of double take. We get calls a year and two later after I've made a presentation or people have seen the work where it's it's clicked. and it took that much digestion for them to get it, for them to get it. These are uh, I'm making some very strong statements here. Yes, I know. Some of them are speculative and people shouldn't believe me. Um, and others that I, I think we've confirmed, are really outrageous. I'm saying that Hebrew, Greek, and Arabic really are sacred languages. And that it's not a matter of belief. It's because they're based on hand gestures which really do connect our conscious life and the physical world, which is what our hand really does. Um, um, all right can I, you were going to go to the pyramids yeah, can I, I give a little right. context here
1: um, sure I, I just want to say one thing before you open up and that is for years and years and years Stan, I have felt drawn to Giza, drawn to the pyramids and come hell or high water I'm going in October I, as a matter of fact um, I had a choice of many many um, uh, tours that I could go on this year and I scratched them all out and said, I want to go to Egypt, and I want to see the pyramids. And I desperately do, and I'm going to, uh, one way or the other. I'm In October, I'm going. And uh, there's something about the pyramids. I can't put my finger on it. I'm just a layman, but I know there's something there. There's something that relates. Uh, I've had discussions with many people about the pyramids. Well, wow. So you tell me maybe we'll do it tonight yeah maybe we'll do it um, it says the great pyramid has been called the Bible in stone this is something you sent me mm-hmm. so set it up
2: well first let's let's back up a little and give a little context here <clears throat> we were talking before about safe and, and, and dangerous and, and all of that right and I was saying that the good guys and the bad guys have the same technology yep. my Jewish friends are going to be upset if I start talking about pyramids and my friends that aren't Jewish are going to wonder what does this have to, What does Pharaoh's you know religion have to do with Judaism? Right. Uh, in fact, we are taught in the Bible and from history, assuming that Moses was a historical figure and Pharaoh was a historical figure, that Moses was raised prince in Egypt and was taught all of the technology, all of the magic, quote unquote, of the Pharaonic court. Um, and yes, Jewish tradition believes that some of that knowledge was brought to Egypt with Joseph, but we don't have to get into that. <laughs> the technology, the knowledge base that Moses had was the same as the knowledge base of Pharaoh. But you know, if you examine the character of Moses and Pharaoh as archetypes, and you examine the character of that pre Israel community and the pre Egyptian community, and you look at the words you describe them, and you use this model we found that gives you operational meanings of words to give a sense of what those words imply, then you can feel the difference here. In the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, <clears throat> Moses is described as the humblest of human beings. He is supposedly a person that has no ego at all, and that's what qualifies him for the high experiences that he's credited with having. Pharaoh literally represents pride. They both have the same knowledge base, but one of these people is humble in the face of the enormity of life, and the other says, I'm big and bad, and I'm in charge here, and I don't care about anybody else. Pharaoh. Um, Pharaoh. Israel, if you look at the word, literally means to be upright or to wrestle with God, to struggle, because you're not perfect and don't know everything with the transcendent. Mitzrayim, Egypt, means constriction, means running around with your head cut off, like, like, like a chicken with your head cut off, means being, you know, the impression I get is it's like living in New York City, and I can say that because I've lived in New York City. Um, <clears throat> that this is, this is, this is um, the, the chaos of modern life, the, con- the spiritual constriction that we all experience in, in our lives today. That's Mitzrayim. <clears throat> Again, the technology is the same. But how we behave and how we use it and the quality of our character determines whether we are talking about the Abrahamic faiths based on humility or what we consider to be our understanding of Pharaoh's religion, which was based on pride. Now from that context we can study the pyramid and we can learn something about both the pyramid and the Bible and we don't have to be choosing between them, we already know the choice. Um, it's not the technology of the pyramid that was the problem, it was how Pharaoh used it. It wasn't the technology of the tabernacle that made Moses great, it was how the people in Moses behaved towards the wonders in their midst, towards the knowledge, towards what they've been entrusted with. So from that context, then we can go back and look at, at, the, at the stories about the pyramid and, and, and the rest of it. Um, Shall I continue on the same? Do you, do you yes.
1: In other words, I want you say the Great Pyramid has been called the Bible in stone. In in that's in particular.
2: But let me let me tell you how that is, please. <clears throat> All right. First, that's that's a traditional teaching. I don't remember where I first heard it, but I've read it in several sources. Um, and and some people take it in a simplistic sense. There was a lot of pyramidology. Um, a, 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 a while ago um, when the pyramids were first being explored uh, Piazzi Smith and, and, and those original people that did very mystical studies and numerological stuff and they were, they were literally looking for the Bible in the pyramid um, and there are people who um, talk about the, the length of the passages as, as being prophetic in terms of, of the life of some of our religious leaders and things of that sort um, <clears throat> that's not what I mean what I mean is that the geometry the structure, the meaning, the purpose of the pyramid is complementary to that in the Bible. When I first laid out the bead chain that lined up the letters in the beginning of the Hebrew text of Genesis, it laid out on a spiral form that had <coughs> seven turns and six, and, and eight um, axes of symmetry. Now, if you're a mathematician, and I don't think most people listening are, right. you know something called the argon pole angle, which is a measure formula in mathematics. If you take the, use the formula for the argon pole angle, and the radius uh, that you're looking at is 7, and there are 8 poles, then the measure of that argon pole, the pattern of genesis that I found, is the 8th through the seven. And if you take out your handy-dandy pocket calculator, you will discover that the eight through the 7 is at almost identically the tangent of the pyramid angle. Approximately 52 degrees. Huh. So that it turned out that when I drew the first verse of Genesis with all the letters lined up, like a paper doll where I put tab A and slot A and tab D and slot B, when I lined up all those letters, I ended up drawing a pyramid. Now, I don't mean it. I just drew it in the shape of a pyramid. I meant mathematically one of the ways to measure the quality of this kind of spiral cyclical pattern matched up with what we see physically in the pyramid. And that was a big surprise. I oh, better. Well, it must that. have been a real wow moment. Yeah, now, now, this is not the strongest part of what I'm saying because there are other possible explanations and there are only a limited number of ways to make these patterns and it might be that, that they maybe all of them are related to the pyramid. So I don't want to make too much of this. But it was surprising, and it is one way in which I mean the Bible and the pyramid may have a a connection to each other. But that's not the deepest meaning. The deepest meaning is in terms of what we think is their function. And and here's where we have to get you know, pretty speculative. And, And what I'm going to say is based not only on my own work, but on speculation by others, although I wouldn't be relaying it if I didn't think it was worth considering. The pyramid is not only called the Bible in stone. Um, but it's also said to have been made somehow by the use of levitation, which, of course, the scientific community thinks is foolish. Yep. And also, um, according to um, authors such as Elizabeth H., um, it was a chamber of initiation in, in the King's Chamber or the, or the coffer or whatever, whatever that might mean. Um, we also have historical reports. Um, the pyramid was only defaced when there was an earthquake in the Cairo region about six or 700 years ago. And when many of the mosques were destroyed, they used the available limestone casing blocks of the Great Pyramid to rebuild some of the mosques. And so that's how the, the coating got stripped off. Mm-hmm. But that's only you know several hundred years ago. We do have some historical references to that, and in fact there were descriptions of the outer skin of the pyramid having had some sort of spiral pattern on it with seven bands in the in the form of the rainbow spiraling around it. Well, that, again, matches the description of the, the the letter model I found in Genesis. It's got seven turns to it, and they spiral around. And there is a theorem in mathematics called the seven-color map theorem that we refers to these sorts of patterns, which could have been known in the ancient world. So there, there's correspondence there. But what about levitation and initiation? What's that referring to? Well, I know what levitation is
1: uh... or what it's supposed to be um... initiation sounds a lot like that which you would go through in what you have described uh, as a result of right.
2: bible codes that's right that's right it looks like the technology is the same. it looks like the purpose here is in the case of the pyramid to preserve a physical record perhaps even a device that could assist in this process and it looks like we have a written record of the experience of the way it unfurls from the Western cultural perspective in the Abrahamic traditions. So it looks like if we could understand the similarities, the the overlaps, if we could reintegrate Egyptian technology into Israelite experience without defaming or or, or debasing the, the, the spiritual tradition, then we might gain a good deal of insight that was available in the, Mosaic period in in the Solomonic period which isn't available to us today and So if we proceed
1: we're going to find that Stan I'm going to tell you something and maybe you can answer this for me and probably you can't I Had a guest on recently who had just returned from Egypt just got back and he brought with him uh, Some of uh, some stones from the actual center of the pyramid. They're doing a dig um, a secret dig maybe not now, secret, from the King's Chamber down to the Queen's Chamber. Yes, I know. Oh, you know about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the gentleman who, and I I wish I could think of his name right now, uh, maybe you know him, uh, who did the program and helped uh, reveal all this, sent me a stone from the center of the pyramid. I have it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you something I've done now, and maybe you can explain to me what it means. Um, You know, a common everyday watch uh, that you will put in the light and then take into a dark room will glow. Mm -hmm. Uh, After an hour or two, that glow, if not exposed to light, will begin to fade.
3: Correct.
1: I tried this, Stan. It's true. You You can take a watch into a dark room, let it go ahead and begin to fade. Take this stone from the pyramid, and when you put it adjacent to the the, the watch, it will begin glowing uh, brighter than if you had had it outside in the sun. Well, be careful. Um,
2: the stone probably <laughs> uh, has, is, is emitting some sort of, you know, radiation, which is stimulating the phosphor to make the watch glow.
1: I don't know. Uh, all I know is I was told to try that,
2: Well, look, and I um, tried can you it, tell and me it, and uh, it worked. What kind of stone is this? Is this it's granite lim- or, limestone or limestone? It's limestone. It's limestone. Oh, it, it's not uncommon for deposits of limestone to have minor amounts of radioactivity associated with them. Um,
1: totally freaked me out. I you, mean, I was told to try it, and I did, and and I I said,
2: oh, 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 gotta well, be this me. this. Um, Potential and again, it's unconfirmed as far as I'm concerned. I'm 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 from Missouri, and intellectually, I got to see it to believe it. But I'm taking your word for it. Yeah, I and have. I've to heard see this it. story before, by the way, so well, I, I have reason to believe you here.
1: You do. You've heard. Well, besides it. believing, it, I've never say, heard
2: a I don't need to be insulted.
1: Stan, I've never heard it, and uh, I had no reason to believe it, and I had high doubts. There was about a re- it.
2: there was a report um, which was uh, I heard a story. Now this is a story that there was a, an Egypt. Uh, um, Pyramid Conference a number of years ago, I believe, down in the Virginia Beach area, where one of the main speakers um, couldn't show at the last minute, and they had a substitute come in and give an off-the-cuff report, and that there was statements made to the effect that they had found chambers in the Great Pyramid that contained um, what I understood to be some form of sand, not limestone. That would be silicate, so right. it may be different. That was radioactive, and that um, the the person reporting it didn't know if it was just mildly radioactive or very radioactive. If it was mildly radioactive, that's not so extraordinary. There are, There is limestone um, that tends to be mildly radioactive. It's not serious or dangerous. It might be enough to make your watch light up.
1: I can tell you this. I've taken every other substance that I can lay my hands on, including, you know, I live out here in the desert, rocks and Everything I can try, and nothing else has the effect of watch that this well, would, piece of stone from the pyramid Would you is. be
2: surprised if I had an explanation for why it might be appropriate for there to be some sort of low-level radioactive material in the pyramid? I would love to know. Why? Well, um, you know how a, a gas laser works. No. No. Um, well, let me explain. All, All right. right.
1: Uh, it's, this o- is obviously going to take a little time, and we're at the bottom of the hour, so... Uh, let's do it when we come back, all right? Exactly. Stay right there. Um, I haven't told the audience about this. I received the rock about a week and a half ago, I believe. And I was told to try this, and I kind of chuckled and laughed a little bit, and put a watch in a closet. When it faded, I went in and tried it, and it blew me away. I do have a rock from the center of the pyramid, and the, it really does do what I just told you it does. We will be back.
0: You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from July 8, 1997. Art fell somewhere in time. Tonight's program originally aired July eighth, nineteen ninety seven.
1: In a moment, I'm going to read you two faxes that are absolutely representative of what I'm getting on Stan Tenen's presentation. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Stan Tenen is my guest. He has uncovered Bible codes. In the original Aramaic text, that uh, when viewed or even when deciphered, if understood, lead to an experience known as the paradise experience. In other words, what Stan Tenen is saying is that if you understand and go into meditation based on these codes and the geometric patterns produced by these codes, you will experience what's in the Bible. For example, in Genesis, creation, actually experience it yourself. I know I'm not up to it, and I doubt many people are out there, but that is what he's saying. And and then I asked, well, do you get it? And here's a couple of typical responses, and I want Stan to hear them. Geometric paradigms embedded in stories of God drowning all children and babies in a global flood and earth populated by a very incestuous family, meaningless, equivocal B.S., and he didn't put B.S., he did the whole thing, not worthy of any Art Bell show. Response one, that's from Doc Barry in Phoenix. Uh, Or this, dear Art, yes, I get it, I teach it. Not only do I get what he's saying, I agree, and am teaching the same thing. From a doctor, uh, whose name I will not have mentioned, will not mention, or this, dear Art, your guest is is outstanding. I have searched for the truth my whole life, in my own way. And my conclusions this far are almost exactly what your guest is saying, and although this just scratches the surface of the whole picture, I'm excited to hear someone else has a similar view. The power he is talking about is available to anyone who has the insight and intelligence to learn uh, be their purpose, good or bad, and your guest is wise not to openly say it is so with the social degenerates of society today. This would be a dangerous time in history. So, Stan, there you are, two uh, very different, or three very different uh, responses to what you've been saying.
2: Well, I'm having a bit of the first time I, I presented this material to people who later became part of um, the board of directors of Meru Foundation, which we put together to support this, yes. um, uh, one of the people in the room stomped out in the middle muttering, This is the work of the devil, and never came back. Um, people are entitled to their opinions. Um, I think the criticism is based on a misunderstanding of what I'm saying, but I understand that, that reaction. Um, I don't know if the the person in fact heard the whole program, so maybe they missed a few of the things that I said. That may well be. Um, I'm not trying to criticize, defend, or promote the stories in the Bible. And the patterning that I'm talking about is not directly related to the stories that we all know and either love or hate, depending on on how you feel about the Bible. Um, I'm saying that as a scientist, I examined the documents, and I found woven into it, and I use the word woven because I think the text actually was woven, um, woven into it um, patterns that I recognized, and I looked for an explanation for them, and the explanation I'm finding is, is pretty far-fetched if you haven't looked into this for yourself. I, I, obviously, it's far-fetched. If it weren't far-fetched, we'd all know about it already, um, and, and um, it is something I don't think people should believe. I think they should check out what I'm saying, Um, On our website, there's actually um, a statement of the relationship of the three Abrahamic covenants, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, to something I call the car-passing trick. And the point I make is, don't believe any of this unless you do the experiments for yourself. And these are not necessarily scary experiments, any more than, than normal dreaming would be scary, or normal daydreaming or fantasizing would be scary. Obviously, people can do crazy things in any context but there are simple things you can do to demonstrate for yourself whether or not there is a basis for what I'm saying. And I, while I haven't reached the heights of, of any of these things, I've done some of these simple experiments. All right, and, give us an example. All right, things. give us an example. Well, um, the car-passing trick, which, which I've discussed at length in other c- contexts, is based on an understanding of the relationship of the three Western covenants, whether you believe them or not. Um, the... The Jewish covenant is basically um, based on the study of the Torah, of the Hebrew Bible. Um, The Jewish tradition emphasizes learning, which if we wanted to be a little negative we could call it head-tripping. If we wanted to be more positive we could talk about it being logical. The Christian covenant, um, I believe, I'm not insulting Christians to say, is based on passion and compassion and nurturing and nourishing and giving and working in the world. Um, The the Christian community isn't that intense on studying, certainly not the Hebrew Bible, and even the Christian Bible isn't isn't always what the Christian community does. Christians are, are known for their passion and their compassion. Islam literally means to yield, to submit to Allah, to let go, to give up. When you have a clear understanding of what you want and are interested in, the Jewish covenant, when you back that up with hard work in the world, what the Easterners would call Dharma, I think. I may be using that wrong. And then after you put in all this clear work and planning and all this hard work, you let go and yield to nature or to life or to God, depending on your beliefs. Um, then things happen. Look, if you're house hunting, you get an idea of what kind of house you want. Right. You search around like crazy for months and months. And at the point at which you give up, bingo, your house shows up. I think many people have had that experience. It's like looking for love. Uh, Yeah.
1: You know, you you look and you look and you look and you look and you finally say, I'm destined to be uh, single without a soul made all my life, and then, boom, the minute you give up, there she
2: is. It's also the principle of which anything is created in the world. Babies come into the world this way. First, we know, we see, we intellectualize, we see our partner at a distance, and we think, we decide we want a child. We fantasize about it. Then we have to to live with our partner, and that's work and passion and compassion. We have to literally make love, and that making love process, which is called the petite mort, the little death, is in fact a giving up. And then when the child is ultimately born, we have to release that child into the world and let go of it. And so the creative process, even in that most elemental of human experiences, is the same. It's based on, on. If in this form of analysis, this isn't the only way you can analyze it. Of course, the, these three three conditions that all have to be present. You have to know what you're doing. You have to work hard at it, and you have to let go of it. Now, I wrote up on the internet um, a little experiment you can do when you're driving along behind a guy that's driving too slowly, <laughs> and there's no way to pass. And I describe in detail how you. <laughs> Think about what you want, uh-huh. how you, you put in the, the appropriate effort,
1: may, may I stop and how you let one, just one second,
2: let me stop you and tell you what I think about in that
1: situation. Uh, dual mounted 50 caliber uh, machine <laughs> guns and uh, a button uh, convenient on my steering wheel, which I can press, uh, totally peppering the car in front of me and destroying it totally. This is not the kind of person who should reach out and try to have the experience
2: you're talking about. <laughs> well, on the other hand, I, I bet you do it unconsciously in all every day in the things that you do do. And I bet that... Um, Sometimes you... it's a rocket launcher, by the way. All right. Well, I'm not saying you have... To... This is not related to you being violent or non-violent. This is a, This is a technique you can experiment with to demonstrate for yourself whether following these stages really does something or this is Are really... You? yes give give me the righteous way well i'm I'm basically saying that it's you shouldn't believe me that the test of these spiritual teachings is not whether granddaddy told daddy told told you. you the test is does it work in your life yes yes
1: all right so so there you are behind the slow guy what
2: should be done well what you can do and you can adapt this to your own circumstances is the first thing you do is you form in your, in your mind clearly without just being random and aggressive um, that you really want to pass this guy. That this is, You notice that, that you've been, you're going slow, oh, yeah. um, and you form a thought that, you know, it would be really nice if we get past this guy, and you look yeah. around for alternatives, and you obviously find that you can't pass, or there's a cop that's, it's a cop, you follow it, you know? Um, <laughs> you can't pull us. out the Tommy gun, right? Um, um, or you shouldn't. Um, anyway, um, so you first you do the mental work then, um you basically do the physical work. you follow this person, you don't try to blow them away you don't try to cut around them. Yes. you actually put the effort in to drive safely behind them yes um and while you're doing this and while you're forming the thought in your mind that you would like to pass yes. you know you know how 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 you, how you, you, you position your mind it's like when you're trying to get through a crowded hallway and you'll tap someone on the shoulder, sure. and they'll just wield a little uh, enough for you to get squeezed by. Certainly. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's that kind of thing. And then when, while you're doing this, you allow yourself to be distracted, to give up on it, to say, okay, you know what? I'd really like to pass this guy. But in fact, like Castaneda uh, recommends, you turn it into a controlled folly. I'm willing to follow this guy till hell freezes over or until I get where we're going, whichever comes first, whether or not I can pass it. And I'm just going to give up on my request and let go of it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes all you have to do is turn on the radio and get lost in what what the the person is saying. Maybe they're listening to us and doing it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the moment your ego has dropped, the moment you've given up, let go, forgotten, you will notice, if this works for you, that something will come up and the obstacle will disappear. Either Farmer Brown will pull over, or um, the road will widen and it will be a passing zone, or something will happen that enables you to safely get past the obstacle. It happens at the very moment you really let go of your trying to do this anyway. You've dropped your ego, and you'll know when it's going to work because you'll realize when you're faking it, and you only think you dropped your ego, and you still want to get past the guy, damn it. Yeah. Um, and you'll also know, and you'll notice <laughs> when, in fact, you actually let go, and... Look, um, you can't power trip this. You can't brag about it. You want to keep your ego out of it. You don't want to tell the guy next to you in the car that what you're going to do, because that's power tripping, and that's ego building, and that right. it prevents you from dropping your will and your expectations. Right. Um, but if you do this in a gentle and humble way, if you pay attention, if you do it beyond the point at which you have any expectation of it's working...
1: You're doing what Gandhi would do. At the very moment when you've <laughs> really given up your
2: expectation it will work, would have done. that's when it will manifest. I understand.
1: Uh, that's what Gandhi would have done, huh?
2: Well, I don't know Gandhi that well, but maybe. Uh, it's certainly consistent with most of the spiritual traditions that I've heard about. A,
1: a, a totally non-violent approach
2: to a confrontation. It's also, may I point out, not based on belief or faith. I'm talking about running an experiment until it's settled to your personal satisfaction
1: I hear what you're saying. I don't know I could do it uh it's It's fascinating. I uh, bet
2: you do it all the time, but I bet but with your problem, they'd be noticing it and and that that's one reason one way people you know if you start noticing how the world is more interconnected, it's scary because you notice you have more responsibility than than you'd like to have and that you're also more helpless than you'd like to be.
1: Stan, it's, it's just not true. Uh, I, I've, I've got to tell you the truth. Uh, for example, tonight I have this little studio cam, so the audience can see me while I do my program. Uh-huh. It's turned off tonight. You know why it's turned off tonight? It's turned off because for the last 48 hours, I have been having a battle with a computer. And Stan, I will either fix that computer, or I will break it beyond all recognition. But I will not sit there and, and, and give up on it or, in essence, um, uh, become Gandhi-like with well, you're respect definitely. to it. Uh, either I'm going to beat it or I'm going to destroy it.
2: Okay. So, well, that's, <laughs> that, so you're not using this technique in this circumstance. Right? So I, I'm not saying you're doing it all the time.
1: My room is a disaster, so I can't turn on the cameras. I mean, there's stuff all over the place here, and that's the way I am about things. Well, now. I, I will keep I coming at them until, until I get them or they get me.
2: Okay, I don't want to tell you what you do. I would rather you <laughs> paid attention to you and discovered what you do and told me. That that would be a little more honest. So let's get back to the pyramid and the science stuff. All right. Um, and I and I want I wanted to make that point because you were talking about this potentially radioactive stone, and I said that there might be an explanation. Stan, for
1: that. I didn't say radioactive. I said
2: that. I just said what I observed. I said potentially. Yes. Right. We don't know. We observed. You 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 told me you observed when you brought this stone that was. A, Excavated in the pyramid, yes, sir. Near your your fluorescent watch face, yes, it glowed more than it would normally have glowed. Ah, uh, yes, sir. I mean, it, eerily so. I mean, so so
1: so much glow that it actually caused some light around me to hit the walls. I mean, it was.
2: A little scary. Fortunately, it doesn't take a lot to make a watch crystal glow a lot. So it may not be a dangerous situation. I wouldn't go to sleep with it next to me, and I wouldn't lick it until it was checked with Uh, a Geiger uh, counter. No problem. But other than that, (laughs) my my first hypothesis is it's probably mildly radioactive, and that's probably not terribly extraordinary, other than it may be deliberate. Um, There is a reason why you would want to make a structure like the pyramid warm. It may even be one of the reasons you would pick cairo as a location because it's warm there um if you were actually if the pyramid were actually and i'm saying if here if the pyramid were actually a device then we could use certain basic scientific principles to figure out what kind of device it is we know devices when you're making something useful and meaningful the materials we choose and how we fashion them and the conditions in which we use them are important You don't make an automobile block out of a soft material that melts at the temperature that gasoline burns. That's correct. All right? And you don't hone the outside of the carburetor, even if you're a car nut. You merely polish it because that would be a gratuitous behavior. You need to hone the cylinders to get them that smooth. But to make it look pretty, you don't need to hone the outside of the carburetor. So that, in fact, what you do and the precision with which you do it and the conditions under which you use it are very important. So if we want to understand the pyramid, we shouldn't just speculate wildly. We should set out a set of hypotheses, and then we should check them off and see what they lead us to. Well, the most important, most impressive thing about the pyramid is its size. So the first question to ask is, is there a reason, other than the purported vanity of the pharaoh, that it would need to be that size? And we should put that on the table. The second most obvious thing about the pyramid and this is the most obvious thing that no one seems to have noticed, is its material. Most of the pyramid, now the chambers and passages are lined with, with granite, but the bulk of the pyramid, well over 95%, or maybe over 99% of the pyramid, is limestone. Limestone, yes, sir. Limestone. And if we examine limestone carefully, we discover something truly astonishing, which no one seems to have paid any attention to. You know, one of the things that's most important in science is resonance, is when things are like other things and therefore can partake of them and interact with them. Yes. The pyramid is made of limestone. Limestone is predominantly calcium carbonate. Um, The pyramid limestone is not that pure. The outer casing stones were much purer, um, but predominantly calcium carbonate. Um, Calcium carbonate is an a very interesting material. It's the most common mineral on the face of the earth after the silicates, after the granite, granitic materials. All of the calcium carbonate on the surface of the planet, the, I believe this is true, maybe our listeners will correct me, is the result of the dissolving and recrystallizing of invertebrate um, skeletons. This is, this is bone that's been dissolved or crushed and compacted and crystallized. Um, and so it's the ash of life. The pyramid, a calcium carbonate structure, sits on a limestone outcropping at Giza. Believe that's
1: a, right. Yes. And that
2: limestone outcropping is part of the eggshell of limestone that surrounds the entire planet. And just like a real eggshell, it's pretty porous. And so we really have a kind of Gaia egg here with this little pyramid sticking out at this particular location. So we have to ask ourselves, is that, is that important too? And of course, we're going to find that it is. Well, the astonishing thing about calcium carbonate is it's got several forms. It's limestone. It's also mother of pearl. It's also chalk if it's really crushed. It, if the crystals are bigger, it's like limestone, which has medium-sized crystals, not so pure. And if they're really pure, then we have calcite, Iceland spar, a completely clear mineral, crystal clear, um, birefringent, you look through it, you see a double image used in the ancient and modern world for that extraordinary property. If you cross two pieces of calcite, it's just like crossing two Polaroids. It gets dark at one angle and bright at another, and anyone can see this, and you can find this stuff lying on the ground all over the world, and you can find it in Egypt. And calcium carbonate in its crystal form, iceland spar, or calcite, cleaves in a regular, sharp way you drop the crystal, it always breaks into the same shaped pieces, the same angles, and those angles are in fact the pyramid's most important angles. The pyramid is a model of the crystal of the material it's made of, and I don't think many people have noticed that, and that's very important.
1: All right, Stan. When we come back, I would like to open the phone lines. There's plenty on the table here. Let's see what, let's see how they react.
0: All right. All right. All right. Coming up, uh, we will go to the phones when we come back. You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, tonight, featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from July 8, 1997. Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from July 8, 1997.
1: The material being presented this morning is something that you apparently either get and understand, or reject and get angry at. That is what I'm concluding by reading uh, what I'm getting from many of you out there. Back to Stan and your questions coming up. This should be very, very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> now to Stan Tenen who has a BS in physics and um, has been researching Bible codes um, uh, derived from ancient Aramaic that produce geometric shapes that induce a condition uh, which actually allows one to experience what is described in the Bible. Not to read it, not to have an understanding of what you read, but to actually experience it. Uh, That's what he is um, saying is contained uh, in this woven tapestry of information in the coding of the Bible. And uh, now we have begun to talk about the pyramids as well. And... I'm going to open the phone lines, and uh, so anything can happen. Stan, uh, are you there? I'm here. All right. Uh, anything can happen once we open the phone lines. So uh, let's see what the audience has to say, all right? First time caller line, you're on the air with Stan Tenen. Good morning.
4: Good morning, Art and Stan. How are you?
1: Fine. Good Where are um, you?
4: I am calling from Cleveland, Washington. Yes, sir. Um, uh, my question is, and let me preface this by saying I've lived in the Middle East myself and have visited the pyramids and the Sphinx and and uh was filled with a little bit of wonderment in that. But my question was the latest discoveries they found on the Sphinx and the relationship between the uh the pyramids and the Sphinx dating, etc., uh and materials as well, uh if there might be uh some links uh uh materials in placement and so forth, not so much uh for obviously uh the solar benefit of, of alignment but also uh, astronomical outside our system um, and then also uh, the, the biblical context of it having been uh, studied that extensively uh, pretty much most of my life as well. Uh, I think that there's a lot of things that we're discovering today that there are uh, many similarities and alignments in uh, both the Islamic beliefs and uh, Christian and Judea beliefs that uh, uh, are being confirmed with uh, what what's happening today with some of the mathematical explanations for them.
2: Well, I think what you're saying is, is basically correct. Um, I don't know a lot about the Sphinx. I haven't done that myself. I am very open to what's been suggested recently. <clears throat> I do, in general, like the work of Bazal and Hancock. Mm-hmm. Um, I think oh, that is much
4: older than what they believed that it had <clears> throat> previously throat> well, believed I, it was.
2: I certainly think we should take what they're presenting seriously and check it out carefully. I am not at all satisfied with the traditional archaeologists' explanations and dates. That doesn't mean that others are right, but it does mean that there's plenty of room for improvement in our understanding here, and some of what I know tends to be consistent with what Bovell and Hancock have presented. Also, we haven't talked about the sky connection to these codes in the Bible um, yet either. But there is a a connection, and it's the same sort of connection as with the pyramids.
1: All right. Um, I would like to bring something up here, and then we'll go back to phones very quickly. Um, And it has to do with Mars. We've got Surveyor on Mars right now, Mm -hmm. and there are some remarkable discoveries being made. For example, they're claiming that at one time Mars was covered in a great flood. We're talking about a red, dusty planet uh, with rocks everywhere, and what they are concluding is, at one time there was a great flood. Well, where the hell did all the water go? I mean, that, that's an incredible thing to contemplate. Three billion years ago, there was a great flood. Mars was in a water world, and now there is no water. It's dusty and dry and red and has rocks, and uh, they're talking about volcanic activity and all kinds of things that are just utterly unimaginable uh, to us. They're saying that, uh, the rocks and uh, that they're seeing there have a complete resemblance with the analysis they've done so far to that which we have found on Earth, which were somehow blown off from Mars in some great catastrophic hit um, that harbor some sort of uh, microbial life. Uh, there is a great mystery there, and it's unfolding before our eyes, raising more questions than it is answering. And, of course, we have these geometric shapes and these... Uh, things at Cydonia that we don't understand and that we are presently
2: not investigating. Do you see a connection there? Yeah, to some extent. Uh, I'm not a planetary physicist, um, and I only know what I've been told by others. Right. But, um, in fact, there is a direct connection between the geometry in the vicinity of the face on on Mars and the geometry of the modeled human hand we found specified in the Bible. Um, the model hand, when you make it properly, the fingertips—if you were to place your hand face facing a, a tabletop with thumb and fingers
3: down—ideally,
2: yes. <clears throat> based on this model, your fingers would come down at 19.5 degrees. Nineteen point five. Nineteen point five, approximately. I mean, you know, um, that, there's more decimal points there, more digits. Um, that's that same marker angle. As has been proposed, is the underlying um, principle of the area around the, the um, face on Mars, so called. That's correct. So it's not the face per se that that convinces me. Um, the it's, geometry. It's the hand on Mars that convinces me. <laughs> All right. And also to be to be explicit, um, I found that that mathematical analysis very very intriguing and very very important. But the clincher for me is the fractal imagery photographs that are in Carlotto's book um, on, on Mars, which show that the face and some of the other objects in the area are quite anomalous when they're analyzed um, using fractal methods of analysis, which we've only recently developed. And so that, that, that combination of circumstances, I find, is, is very, very intriguing and suggestive. Uh-huh. Um, I'm hoping that one of these NASA missions to Mars is going to actually go back and, and have a good look.
1: Is it possible, this is a reach, but let me just open it up, that there was, a, where there's water, was water, there very well could have been life. Obviously, the suggestion is there was life on Mars, uh, intelligent at one time. What's there is too geometrically similar to what's here. Um, to not suggest that there was intelligent life there at one time. Um,
2: so, do you? It's th- certainly possible. Um, I mean, water is, is is very important to life as yes, we know it. Yes, indeed. But then you know we've recently discovered life in, on Earth in places where we didn't think it was possible. We used to think that that the sun was necessary um, because of energy and information um, considerations. We
1: now know it's not. The Thermal vents
2: yep. in deep sea can yep. provide an equivalent source no question about it so that was totally unexpected i i am I'm, um, I'm very liberal uh, on the idea that there there is going to be life in throughout the universe and i think the bigger question is, is how intelligent it is um i think it's almost inevitable i mean we've already found um carbon molecules of various forms that are suggestive of life on on all kinds of things that have hit our planet from outer space um and and um it's just very plausible that some of these these life-like proteins are going to going to occur, uh, and, and organic chemicals are going to occur, given how vast the universe is.
1: But Stan, what I, where I was going with this was, if there was life on Mars, if it did evolve to an intelligent uh, a level, is it not possible that these geometric patterns that we see were created by Mars
2: equivalent to our pharaohs? Oh, sure. I, and I don't, wouldn't get that culturally explicit, but yeah, absolutely. That this is, you know, some, if there was intelligent life, um, there's good likelihood they built what we're looking at. Absolutely.
1: That there is something universal in what you have been talking about tonight.
2: That's right. That's what I'm saying. This isn't a matter of believing in Judaism or yeah, Christianity or Islam, but we're, or, or, or an Egyptian religion or anything like that. This is a matter of underlying patterns that permeate the universe Um just like the number pi is universal throughout the universe. It's not dependent on the measurement, although that's how we first learned about it. It just is. It's an ideal that you find when you use mathematical methods to compare radiuses in the ideal to circumferences in the ideal. And you always, no matter where you are, no matter what your consciousness is, no matter what you believe, You're going to find that value of pi in whatever number it is.
1: Absolutely makes sense. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Stan Tenen. Hi. Hi. Hi.
5: I I wanted to ask uh, a couple questions. Uh, One uh, was when you were talking about um, the um, identification with God being overwhelming, and this is what uh, Carl Jung said that uh, an unmediated uh, uh, realization of God could be overwhelming
6: to yes. people.
2: Yes. You know, that, that appears to be true.
5: And um, yes, this is kind of an empirical thing in the, the 20th century that he realized. And the other thing I wanted to ask you was, um, um, like, do you know if... Um, or do you have any opinion about whether um, the the people who actually wrote the Bible had um, did this deliberately and encoded that message into the Bible, or it was something like a, <laughs> a, a John David Oates? All right all, right, all
1: right, oh, all that's, right. That's very good. I think we get it. Uh, in other words, was this an intentional encoding, or, I don't know whether you know about Mr. Oates, who does reverse speech. Uh, and it seems to be, reverse speech is fascinating. You just play something backwards, and every few seconds, uh, there will appear this congruent sentence that appears to come from the unconscious, which either is, congru- is always congruent with what's being said forward, but either reveals it to be a lie or the truth. So, uh, did the, the people who write the Bible... Um, know what they were doing or is this coding something that was probably un- uh, not not a conscious thing uh, at, at the writing?
2: Well, um, they, I don't know if there's a simple answer, but let me give you an analogy. Um, is the number pi written by our mathematicians or is it intrinsic to be discovered in the world? Um, obviously... It's discovered, yes. but it's also we choose the number system, we choose to do the calculations, and we choose to interpret them. Um, my understanding of the experience of Moses is that because of his great humility, his ego dropped out, and he was able to experience a kind of unification of the conscious and the physical world. And that, that unfurled through him, in a way that he could express um, in Hebrew letters that represented the path of the feelings that he received and experienced. Um, That what the sequence of letters in the Hebrew Bible represents is literally, as best can be recorded, the experience of Moses in detecting this pattern and in receiving it from Well, we can say God, you don't have to believe in God, wherever it manifested from. It could come from nature, like pie does. You don't have to believe in God to discover pie. Um, I prefer to believe the stories as we're given them, um, but that's my choice. I can't prove they really happened. I do know that honorable people wrote the stories, so I believe that they chose things to say that they believed to be literally true. But that's not really dependent on the experience that Moses had directly. Moses, I think, wrote down a sequence of Hebrew letters, which are pretty much analogous to the process a mathematician uses when they calculate and write down the sequence of digits in pi. That Moses was recording something intrinsic to the relationship between consciousness and physicality. Mm -hmm. And that that's what the Bible at the letter level, uh, the sequence of Hebrew letters, actually represents. And, you know, there's a possible proof or confirmation of this. If I'm right, then these Bible codes, which consist of these equal interval letter skip patterns, which I'm saying appear to re- mean that the text is woven of these patterns, and so that these equal skips are like looking at stripes on a Navajo rug. Sure. All right. That these actual patterns are patterns that exist in nature. Now, the Jewish tradition teaches that the Torah is the template of creation, and that God in a sense, looks through the Torah and projects the world. Well, we don't have to believe that or disbelieve that to test it. If we can look through the Torah and see the world, then that confirms the teaching. Well, what could we see? It appears that these woven patterns are like basket weaving, like wreaths, very similar to the sorts of maps that are woven by Polynesians and Micronesians to navigate using the tides and using the sky, the heavens. We know that the ancient Egyptians, we know that the Israelite traditions, we know that the Babylonians and many of the other ancient peoples, had excellent calendars. They observed the heavens. A lot of the pyramid archaeology research that's being done now is also focused on the observation of the heavens. When you attempt to draw these epicyclic patterns that the planets and the constellations and the stars appear to make in the sky, they look for all intents and purposes like basket weaving. I'm saying that as part of what we're discovering is woven into the Torah text, is basket weaving that represents the patterns on the temples of the heavens. And that if we can project that same pattern onto the temple of our mind, In principle, there's no difference between inside and outside, we have no skin, and we are experiencing an ego death, experience a meditational or prophetic state. That this is not mysticism, this is a neurophysiological reality that can be tested. That this isn't some theory that I'm making up. We can literally look at the woven patterns in the Torah text which exists and compare them to patterns in the heavens and see if they're the same. And we can flesh out these ideas to the extent that they're true and refine them and learn a good deal about how the ancients view the world and what they were really recording in what we call the Bible.
1: All right, when we get back, I want to ask you, if you were in a debate with uh, Mr. Grosman, who wrote the Bible Codes, um, would would it be a debate of process? Uh, or what form would the debate take? That's that's what I'm going to ask when we get back. And back we will be in a few moments. And we'll really be hard into the phone. So hang in there, everybody.
0: You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time, on Premier Radio Networks. Tonight, an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM from July 8, 1997. listening to Art Bell Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from July 8th, 1997.
1: Have you ever noticed that music has a lot of the same properties? Music is mathematical uh, without question. Music uh, can produce an altered state without question. Now, it's it's a weak analogy to what we've been discussing, but think it is analogous i'll ask about that in a minute my guest is stan Tenen, and we're talking about bible codes and more all right back now to the uh, uh telephones and uh stan are you there i am here all right uh i promised people active phone lines so we got to do it east of the rockies you're on the air with stan Tenen. good morning
6: Good morning. My name is Jeannie, and I live in Fort Myers, Florida.
1: Hi, Jeannie. How are you? Fine. Uh, Fine.
6: I've been walking down the same road that Dan has walked and run into some interesting information that I wanted to share. Um, Another gentleman was uh, working on Bible codes and wrote a book called The Signature of God. I don't know if you've heard of that one.
2: I've heard the title. I haven't seen it.
6: Okay. Uh, He was using... uh, 22 space intervals, and coming up with um, sentences such as, Yeshua is my name, Yeshua is gift, and I don't have the book here, or I could give you some other ones, but um, he also used the 22 uh, interval spacing to uh, determine some of the prophetic uh, things such as um, Hitler, uh, the Third Reich.
1: Okay, that's that's Drosman's work you're talking about. Yeah. Well,
6: that, I'm not sure. Yeah, the Third Reich was mentioned in there.
2: Yeah, that that's yeah. basically um, that's the part of this that is not valid. Um, the codes that have been detected statistically are valid, but the interpretations about Hitler and Yeshua and Joe Camel and Buddha, all <laughs> um, well, that's been done too. Um, are not valid, um, and right. there are sound technical reasons why that's true. I understand. I, I asked this and didn't
1: get back to it. If I were to have Mr. Dawson on the program with you and there would be an ensuing debate about his interpretation of the coding and yours, what form
2: would that take? Well, th- I would spend on, on three um, pieces of information first thing I would do, and I just pulled this out of my bookshelf while we were on um, commercial break here. Um, And I know not everyone has a statistical reference library, but I I happen to have a few books. This is from Reasoning About Luck by um, Zine Ambigeokar, published by Cambridge University Press. It's um, a recent publication. It's a scholarly publication by a quality statistician. Um, On page 9, he says, quote, about statistics, it's worth making the point that the concept of probability makes sense only when there is some understanding or working hypothesis about what is going on. What that means is that although the numerical results that the statisticians have obtained are correct, their meaning is completely undecidable unless and until there's a working hypothesis. And that's what's been missing. And the benefit of a working hypothesis of a model is that it enables you to sort the real, meaningful results you have from results that you know you can expect to occur by virtue of accident alone. You can't tell the difference between a coincidence or an accident and a real data point without a model. And that's the problem. The Hitler, Yeshua, um, Rabbi name, because ju- I'm not trying to just be negative here, these shorter codes that say Rabin assassin will assassinate are not legitimate because they fail the basic principle of probability theory. There is no working hypothesis. Now, that's the first leg I'd stand on, and I think any statistician would have to back me up on that, including the people who did the work.
1: Well, uh, if I can get Mr. Droznan on, would you be interested in such a debate? Oh, absolutely. All right. Um, uh, I, Wh- I, I, what, what, hold on. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Stan Tennant. Hi. Hi. Uh,
7: Stephen and Victoria.
1: Victoria, you BC, it? all right?
7: Uh, yeah. Um, first of all, Art, um, that uh, piece of rock that you received from the pyramid? Yes. How close to your um, computer and your cameras did you have it?
1: <laughs> um, not close enough. Uh, you that's make not your TV me. screen glow too, you. <laughs> <know>. <laughs> well,. Um, That's worth a try. Um, Yeah, you
7: might want to remove it from the room or something.
1: uh, It's not in the room.
7: Okay. Um, I was just going to make a a slight, uh, I guess it's probably a major comparison. Um, Most religions, um, when people are trying to find God, um, they're either in prayer, or if they can't find God, then they're asking for God, so their hands are outstretched. So it's fairly um, symbolic that um, it would come back to um, the hands themselves. And um, with regards to the pyramid. Um, it's it's probably something that God had created and um, left there as a testament um, and uh, the Egyptians um, in, in their evolution and everything else probably moved into it at some point in time and um, they'll probably find at some point in time that there will probably be um, a connection bec- between um, Moses and the pharaohs and something to do with the, the golden calf that might actually be um, hidden somewhere in in the Great Pyramid itself.
2: Well, in, 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 in the in, the I know people that. hold beliefs like that, and um, everyone really has a right to their beliefs and to work through them. Mm-hmm. I, I try not to pay a lot of attention to traditional teachings in at the word level. I've been trying to do, in spite of my personal beliefs, um, an analysis of the physics of what I see. And in the case of the Bible text, the sequences of letters. And so um, I heard the story that you've just told us uh, from others. Um, um, I think that it's important that you work through what you believe to be true. <clears throat> but it's not something that I can focus on. Yeah. Um, I think that we are the agent, uh, assuming that uh, I'm an Orthodox Jew, so I, I can say, assuming there is a God but I don't think you have to, to believe that. I'm saying, assuming that there's a God, that we're the agents by which God works. That if, the, if God made the pyramids, he used us to do it. Um, because I don't see any need for a miracle there. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't get into the physics that explains some of the legends about meditation and initiation, but in fact there are rational explanations for the alleged properties of the pyramid that um, are much more spiritually sound than simply jumping to a miracle. That's part of the problem with the Bible codes, jumping to this prophetic level and jumping over the empowering level of real understanding. All right. Uh, First time
1: caller line, you're on the air with Stan Tenen.
8: Yes. uh, You want me now?
1: That's you. Yeah, this
8: is Rebecca in San Diego. Hi. Hi. And, Mr. Tenen, I just want to say that I deeply, deeply love you, love what you're doing, and you may not consider yourself much of a saint, but I I consider you a spiritual giant. Um, you know, you're not a Pharisee, but let's face it, the Pharisees were the ones that crucified Christ. They missed it altogether. Um, the question I have is, I've always had a deep desire in my heart, being a Christian, uh, to get a pure translation of the Bible. And I've been told that as, I've never quite uh, trusted the translations that I'm reading. And I've been told that there's been changes made like, um, this is like a crude example, but uh, when it was originally written, it was written something like, um, my stomach would praise the Lord. And when it was translated, it would be translated something like, my soul would praise the Lord, or they'd change what was originally said. And I was wondering if your works are going to help to get back to the original um, translation of the Bible. <laughs>
2: well, yes, actually, if, if these theories that we're working with check out, then um, one of the things we've discovered by taking an analytic scientific approach is that we've actually found a way of rationally assigning meanings to each of the Hebrew letters. Right. And we've discovered that the meanings we found by this rational analytic process Actually match up with the traditional letter name meanings for the letters. But that the benefit of our operational meanings is that you can actually add them together to figure out what the root word means. So that, for instance, the word that we translate now as Sabbath, which we know is, in a colloquial sense, means the seventh day of the week. Right. The actual Hebrew letters say to sit within yourself, which implies meditation.
8: Oh, that's beautiful.
2: (laughs) And that's also why Jews are taught, in my opinion, this isn't the rabbinic teaching, this is from my work, that's why I believe Jewish tradition teaches that you don't carry outside of the home on the Sabbath. You sit within yourself. You don't take outside and do work. And so if you go to the letter level and read it letter by letter, you can get a a more accurate sense of the meaning. In terms of translations of the Hebrew Bible, I think your best translation, way to proceed would be to get as many different translations as you can find and do your own comparison. Right. I don't think that one can express the full meaning of the Hebrew in any one English translation. That's true of any great work. It, it's not just true of the Bible. You can't translate Shakespeare very well into French unambiguously. I'm sure there are some beautiful translations, but I'm sure they're not all the same. So I think that if you want to get a deeper sense of what the actual Bible is saying and get away from some of the... Mythological um, interpretations that our religious traditions have shaded there. Maybe I'm um, certainly inadvertently, but inevitably, then get a Hebrew version, get a Catholic version, get a Christian version. Even if you can find, get a Muslim version, um, and read an, an older version and, and a more recent one. Read um, a critical edition and read a very plainly written one. Mm-hmm. And. And trust your own work to lead you where you need to go. Right. Don't Don't trust me or experts. Uh, um, I'm not a guru. Um, when you're listening to another person, even if they're a saint, you're just listening to another human being. When you listen to your heart, honestly, then you might be listening to God.
8: You
2: got it. <laughs> All right.
1: Thank you very much for the call. And good morning. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Stan Tennant. Hi. Uh,
9: yes, Art. Yes, sir. Um, love your show. Um, this is Jeff from Gulfport, Mississippi. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Tenen?
3: Mm-hmm. Is
9: that right, Tenen? Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I was real interested in, uh, especially your earlier show that you had, what, about a month ago or whenever?
2: Yeah, just a month ago.
9: And uh, anyway, I started fiddling with, uh, you know, I was interested in the concept, so I started fiddling with uh, the Hebrew a little bit. And anyway, I was using a sequence of seven, um, and in a progressive base, a 7 and a 7 base, progressing to a 12 base, but I was using 7 in each base. Anyway, I have uncovered a complete sentence, um, but I've only done one. I don't know if I can repeat it throughout the text. I just started at the beginning. In the beginning, God created you know.
3: Mm-hmm.
9: And uh, But anyway, using that base, it came out... Um, Man and woman, through sloth and desire, alas, will perish. It's kind of weird, but uh, that's the way it came out. And I was wondering, have you tried any progressive bases like that?
2: Well, actually, um, yes and no. Uh, I haven't tried anything like that, and um, I, I wouldn't even know how to evaluate how technically accurate it would be to do such a thing. What I've tried to do is to go back to technology and understanding that we know is available several thousand years ago. And so I'm basically trying to limit myself to um, the understanding of the calendar and of weaving and embroidering and brocading and working with wood and the simple um, cooking and household skills and farming skills that we know people had because from that context I can be reasonably sure that I'm not making up something, that that the tools I'm using and the tools they were using are similar and I'm digging in similar earth, I'm likely to be on the right track. And if I use more modern ideas, um, uh, it's hard for me to understand um, if if they're appropriate.
9: The reason I used a 7 base and progressed it to 12 was because of the scribes. Um, during the time of the writing. So I thought that
4: would be an
2: interesting way to do it. And well, really, I, I don't happening. know anything about that, and, and I, I guess I feel like our, our audience feels um, I'm, I'm not really following completely what you were saying, so I, I guess um, we're all sort of in that same boat. Um, <laughs> I would say, Jeff, that maybe you want to go to some local college and take it to some math professor and have them look over what you did. And maybe they can give you some some clues as to as to whether it's a meaningful thing to do and and what it might mean. All
1: right, first time caller line. You're on the air with Stan Tenen. Good morning.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is John from Columbus, Ohio. Yes, sir. Hi, John. And I was wondering if any of your research goes back to the Kabbalah. Yes. Um. I didn't start with any interest in the Kabbalah. I never even heard the term when I started. But what's turned out is that these models that we found by lining up the letters in the Hebrew text of Genesis actually make sense of Kabbalistic texts that are now in dispute or only translated as mythology or poetry. Okay. You know? a, I believe there's a passage that says that Moses knew the ways of God but Israel saw the acts. In other words, like Moses knew how to do it and Israel just saw it done. That, there's some truth to that. The the, the context of the of the situation at, at Mount Sinai is that um, the Moses and, and the people were in a state of synesthesia, where it's actually said that they heard the images and saw the sounds. Okay. And, and that's indicative of, of, a, of a psychological state um, of, of meditation, um, right. and people have reported that in various different um, spiritual experiences in a wide range of traditions. Right, and I've had many experiences and done meditation for 25 years. Uh huh. And I was wondering, how the, is there a number or something where uh, I can get your work? Well, um, yeah, I was hoping that Art would give me an opportunity to give out uh, information on how people can get in touch with us. All right, go can right. I do that? Yes, do it now. Okay, well, the best and easiest way is if you can get up on the internet, we have a website, um, it's the normal prefixes and then www.meru, M E R U, Mary Edward Raygun Upside, <laughs> dot org, O R G, or non profit, so we get an org designation. Right. Um, and you can write to us for introductory information on our work, which is not about pyramids and and is mostly about the alphabet and the text of Genesis. We'll send you an introductory packet. We're Meru Foundation, M E R U, P O Box 503, 503, and that's in Sharon, S-H-A-R-O-N, Sharon, Massachusetts. Massachusetts is M-A, and the zip is 02067. All right. Is there uh, any phone number? If people want to order uh, our material as listed on the website or want um, a free number that can be relayed to us for information, you can dial 888-422-MERU. Uh, why don't you just give me
1: the numbers? Uh, do you know the numbers? Of what? 888-422, and then
2: what are the rest of the numbers? Oh, uh, gee, I don't have them. <laughs> I, I just learned it that way myself. Um, <laughs> It would be six three seven eight. <laughs> I cut that right off my phone. Some uh,
1: I I learned something uh, in doing commercials and giving out numbers. Some people respond well to the um, uh, the letters, uh, and other people don't respond at all well to them. And so, if you're going to do that sort of thing, you're best off giving out both. It would be 888-422-6378, Correct. I believe
2: that's correct. Six, three, <laughs> seven, eight. M-E-R-U. The reason I use the letters is because that's the way I could remember it. I understand. Uh, but everybody uh, has a better, different... Better to look at the website or drop us a, a line. Um, also, um, let me say, we were enormously pleased with the response we got from the last show. Um, on, we sent out about 500 packets. Some of them went out later. We are a nonprofit, so we use nonprofit bulk mail. But it still costs us a couple of thousand dollars, and we really are a non-profit. So if people can help us out a little bit, we'd greatly appreciate it. We'd like to provide the material, and we will provide it. But if any of you are in a reasonably well-off state and are feeling um, generous, we could sure use your help, and um, and we'd appreciate it. Well, it's incredible work you're doing, Stan, absolutely incredible.
1: and. Uh I go into a deep, long period of thought every time I have a conversation with you, and tonight has been no exception. So I want to thank you uh, for being with us, and uh, we will have you back yet again, no doubt, because uh, as you mentioned, the audience reacted in mass, and uh, I'm sure we'll get that again.
2: Well, I, I'd really be pleased, and there's a lot more that we didn't get to that we promised, so let's do it as soon as you'd it. Like.
1: That's why there's always a next time. Stan and thank you. Thank you, sir. Good night. All right, that's it, folks. That's all there is tonight. And we will be back tomorrow evening. It's going to be a very, very interesting week. Tomorrow evening, the Cassini Mission with Carl Grossman. Uh, Wait till you hear about that. Coming up this Friday night, Saturday morning, uh, Father Malachi Martin. For those of you that have been looking forward to another appearance, that will be Friday night, Saturday morning, and there may be yet more to come. So, as the old expression goes, stay tuned. Same place, same time, same station. Good night!